Astonishing Legends would like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Skylight Frame, Fight Camp, Best Fiends, Miller High Life, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Tonight's show is a bit different for Astonishing Legends. We've decided to talk about two legends. One that's not even a month old, and another that roared into the zeitgeist over half a century ago. They may not seem connected, but in many ways they are, uh, simply because they are both unexplained. That and, well, they both occurred very close to or at Christmas. Uh, is there a message there? Not sure. On the surface, that fact would appear to be happenstance. Our first topic of discussion tonight is more current and topical than we usually do on our main show, but we received so much chatter about it on social media, it was impossible to overlook, and that is the Utah Monolith, a strange metallic structure seemingly planted in the middle of nowhere in Utah, placed in such a way that you wouldn't even see it unless you hiked down into the canyon it was in. Noticed by chance when some biologists flew over it in a helicopter while surveying the local bighorn sheep population, this structure went through a wide series of surprising events in a very short period of time. Tonight, we'll take a cursory look at everything that happened and let you know what we think the monolith might be. Our second story this evening is about something far less known, a legend that we originally thought would be short on details but turned into a far bigger story than we expected. And that seems to happen a lot, which only goes to show, when you hear a legend, you're almost never hearing much more than what's on the surface. And that's most certainly the case with a legend known as the Warminster Thing. Reminiscent of the broad series of disparate events at Skinwalker Ranch, this tale will leave you perplexed. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The air was brazenly filled with a menacing sound. Sudden vibrations came overhead, chilling in intensity. They tore the quiet atmosphere to raucous rags and descended upon her savagely. Shockwaves pounded at her head, neck, and shoulders. Descriptions of the thing by Arthur Shuttlewood, as reported in his book, The Warminster Mystery. Join us tonight for a special dual-topic episode of Astonishing Legends. Silver Bells. Yes, I, I got it. Oh, you know what that was? Yeah, you're a better singer than I am, as we'll find no. out tonight. Uh, we are back, <laughs> folks. Happy holidays. I think I'm most happy that uh, 2020 is coming to a close. I mean, it's great to have survived it so far, but jeez. Uh, yeah, well, you mean the fun is ending so soon? Yeah, it just seems like one long, unpleasant dream sometimes. Uh, yeah, tell me about it. It actually turns out that my 90-something-year-old grandmother has come down with COVID. Oh, no. Yeah, oh. she seems to be doing okay, however, at least okay enough that they're going to send her home after a week in the hospital. But for those of you out there that believe in the power of kind thoughts or a prayer or two, I know my family wouldn't mind some on her behalf, not only for her, but for those selfless folks that are helping to take care of her right now. Uh, do they know how she got it? Uh, no, they're testing anyone that's been around her and, uh. you know, trying to figure that out. But so far, uh, as far as I know, all the tests in terms of her caregivers and any family that has seen her have been negative. So mm. well, we're not sure what happened there. Interesting. But her symptoms have not been too horrible, just mostly uh, like a severe cough. And she has yeah. been on oxygen, not ventilated, but on mm. oxygen. So uh, okay. we're, we're hopeful for the best. 
Well, tonight we have a great show for you, but real quick, before we get started, we did want to mention, in case you didn't hear the special announcement we posted a few days ago, that we're looking for some uplifting stories to share on next week's episode. Uh, They can certainly center around the holidays, but they don't have to. Yeah, folks, we've gotten several already, and it's a bit close to the wire, so if you're going to send one, please do it sooner than later. But really, we're just looking for any holiday-themed unusual story. Uh, It doesn't have to be spooky, but it could be. It doesn't have to be heartwarming, but it certainly could be. Just really any story that has a strange twist, a a head-scratching coincidence, you know, something that made you say, wow, and that you tell at a holiday party. Yeah, and when we say sooner than later, if we're going to include it in next week's show, we need it by like Monday or Tuesday (laughs) at the absolute (laughs) latest. So if you're hearing this right now uh, and you got a story like that, get it to us as soon as you can. Actually, the moment Scott gets done talking here. Yeah. (laughs) Has to be in right away. Yes. Just just turn the podcast off and send it in. Uh, You can email (laughs) these, as many of you already have, but we're also welcoming recordings, which which can be emailed to us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com. And uh, one last quick thing I'll say is we do have a few new things coming into the store, which we're hoping we're going to get in in time for the holidays. But either way, we're expecting them soon. We'll let you know for sure when they're there. You're going to be excited about some of them. This includes ceramic coffee mugs and a new design and uh, beanies, like knit caps or toboggans. People call these different things all over the country and world. (laughs) Uh, But they're pretty cool. And uh, we'll, we'll let you know as soon as we get them in. Okay, well, it's time for the first of three, really three Christmas or holiday-oriented shows, right? Yeah, there's going to be three shows on Christmas this year. And I mean, when you talk about Christmas stuff every year, we've been at this six years. And then the first couple of years, I think we kind of ignored Mm -hmm. it. And then we're like, oh, we got to do a Christmas show. But then you find out when you're in the paranormal realm and Christmas and you're putting that stuff together, there's not a ton out there to uh, talk about. I mean, we've already covered Krampus and Pere Futard and all the St. Nick (laughs) and the pagan traditions. And, you know, I I was talking to my wife. I was like, we need some. Mm. She was like, how about this? I was like, we done it, did it, did it, talked about it last year, year before. Yeah. She had a a list of great ideas and uh, you just knocked them down one by one. Well, we've done them all. She was like, this is like if you were trying to pitch stories to my show. I was like, yeah, I know. So. Boy, that's funny. But, you know, we did, uh, sorry to say, blow our Krampus wad on the (laughs) very first year we came out because we started in October of 2014. Yeah. That was an easy go-to. I think uh, we were just talking about like, this is crazy. That's scary and fun and, you know, all traditionally and uh, all uh, legendy and uh, Krampus was an easy choice. And then I think uh, we just went on from there. But why I will tell you last year's uh, The Lost Christmas Special. Oh, yes. I started to research the actual origins of St. Nicholas and Christmas, and I really got into it. And then I was kind of, uh, you know what? We should have just continued on with this. Yeah. Well, it was meant as a narrative plot device, yes. more or less, the, the research on it. So maybe one day we'll come back to a, a more interesting aspect of St. Nicholas or the Victorian traditions of Christmas. Also, uh, someday I do want to look at Dickens. Which we touched on last year as well with the special. Yeah. We did. It, and coming up in a conversation for some more Christmas programming, we all talked about our favorite renditions of A Christmas Carol, and mine has still got to be the Chuck Jones version, the animated one that just creeped me out. So oh, I yeah. still watch that every year. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, on that point, folks, we uh, do have three shows geared towards holiday stuff this year for our three December shows. This is just the first of them. We'll be back next week with uh, the one that you heard me talk about and the housekeeping there that we're still looking for some stories from. After that, well, that one's kind of a surprise. I'm going to save that one for the last show of the year. We'll tell you about that next week. But mm-hmm. right now, though, we were trying to think of something that we could talk about. And also, there's this something topical that's been happening. And 
this is something that we're next year, I think we're going to try to do a little bit of this on YouTube when we have the time and as we're gearing up for doing more stuff there, where we talk about more topical and current things uh, and less of these broader evergreen kind of paranormal topics. And something will happen and then our Twitter account, which I manage, will just blow up. It's off the Mm. charts. Everyone's tweeting and it really tells you how Twitter's architecture works because Apparently, no one is seeing all the other tweets about it. You just kind of get the same, which I love, by the yeah. way. I'm not, asking, I'm not complaining. I'm not asking anyone to stop sending <laughs> stuff. We love it. It's how we get informed. Yeah. But we did get 20, 30 tweets about the monolith in Utah. Right. So I thought right. the monolith in Utah, I was like, Forrest, I feel like we have to talk about this. But it's December. Not really sure this is going to work. So then I decided that it would become the Christmas monolith. <laughs> Well, it is. You know what? I'll give you that it could be a postmodern freak out modern art tree. Yeah, there we go. It's a Christmas tree. It's a Christmas tree. Yes, with so many messages, you know, entailed in in just the starkness, the sleekness of it, comments on post-industrialization and uh, the human place within a social, societal, whatever. Okay, you know what I'm saying? That was great. That was a great speech. Keep going. Don't stop. No, my point was that (laughs) I was thinking about it like... Yeah, it's kind of a structure. It has no affiliation, but why not let it be Christmas? Indeed, indeed. Well, for those of you who haven't heard or are turning a blind eye to Twitter, which I wouldn't blame you and and social media in general, Mm. this thing popped up in the middle of the desert in Utah, and it's in a very unexpected place. You wouldn't see it unless you were hiking for it. It's down in a canyon. And it's not somewhere where there should be even camping, really, unless you're doing uh, like free range camping, which we'll talk about a little bit with the Bureau of Land Management. Good, good. But it shouldn't have been there. And so we're going to talk about how it got discovered. Then we'll talk about the obviously the immediate things it evoked. I'm going to read here yeah. from <laughs> this only just happened, by the way, November 18th. Right. When this first popped up, and I think the very first things that when you send it to me or we saw it together. And of course, Scott and I text uh, constantly all the time. It's just like, uh, did you see this or whatever? And my first thought is that is exactly something that I would do. Yeah. (laughs) I I would build it or have it built and I would deposit it there. And I don't care if anybody saw it for another 500 years. Right. Just knowing it was out there. You're that committed to uh, perpetrating an unsolvable mystery. To the slow, slow, slow burn prank. Right. It's not really a prank. It's just it it's a piece of art. When I saw that, it's like, yeah, well done, whoever it might be. Let's talk about how it was discovered, because that's a really important part. Sure. This would definitely was put there by somebody who was ready to wait a long time. I'm reading here from, <laughs> yeah, like I said, this just happened November 18th. Mm-hmm. What is this? You know, it's not even uh, 12, 15 days ago but as we're recording this. And it's already got... A Wikipedia page. This comes along a few days ago. <laughs> it gets a Wikipedia page. We've been doing this for six years, almost uh, 200 episodes. Have we got one? No. Nobody yeah, nobody well, wants to write one about us. But Now, um, we're going to have to do our own, but uh, yeah, let's just put that on the uh, back burner. For well, yeah, we're going to back burner that. But I am going to read about uh, how this thing was found from the Wikipedia page. On November 18th, 2020, state biologists of the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources were in southeastern Utah carrying out a survey of bighorn sheep from a helicopter when one of the biologists spotted the structure, and told the pilot, Brett Hutchings, to fly over the location again. Hutchings described the moment. He was like, whoa, 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 turn around, turn around, turn around. I was like, what? And he's like, there, there's this thing back there. We got to go back and look at it. He noted that the object appeared man-made and was planted, in quotes, in the ground instead of being dropped from the sky. So two days later, on November 20th, the Utah Department of Public Safety posted a picture of this pillar on Instagram. 
And on November 23rd, the Department of Public Safety released videos and photographs of the object, but not its exact location, on their website saying, DPS Aero Bureau encounters monolith in Red Rock Country. This monolith was actually installed by unknown individuals in a red sandstone slot canyon in Lockhart Basin on public land that was removed from the Bears Ears National Monument, which you may remember hearing about in the news because in 2017, President Trump shrunk the protected area of that monument. The site has no public services, no parking, restrooms, or cell phone service, and the exact location of the monolith was not disclosed by the DPS to prevent people from becoming lost while trying to find it. Within hours of them announcing it, a Redditor, of course, a user named Tim Slane, (laughs) had identified the object on Google Earth. And we'll get more into that in a minute. They, of course, tracked it down immediately. It's pretty hard if there's a photo now to keep people from figuring out where it is, especially when everyone is stuck at home in front of their computers and screens Mm. anyway. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. So that's how it was discovered. And when you think about this, There's a lot of uh, petroglyphs of bighorn sheep. That's what it's known for, going back to very, very early times. And it's famous for that kind of stuff being found on the rocks. To this day, they're doing surveys on them. And so they went out there in the helicopter, and they just happened to fly over this thing in a way that they would see it. Now, there's a couple things to think about there. One is that it has a very shiny metallic surface. So you would see it from the air, but you also had to pass over it because it was not up above the surrounding ground level. It was down at a hole, Yeah, you know, in a canyon. So it's not like if you were standing on the horizon a long way away, you would notice it. It probably would have gotten found a lot sooner uh, in terms of when they think it was planted. So the interesting thing here, though, is if you look up what a monolith is, technically monoliths are stone. They're not made of any kind of metallic substance. You know, and the first thing people started thinking was, oh, it's 2001. This is, is it alien? It's an antenna. It's a, a hint of ancient civilization. People's minds went mm. wild. And rightfully so. It's a fun thing to think about. But in this world, when you think about monoliths, you think about there's natural ones like El Capitan, Devil's Tower, which everyone knows from Close Encounters. There's a lot of other ones. Then there's ones, uh, and I only just found this out today, that are actually called monumental monoliths. The mm. Sphinx falls into that category. It's a monument and a monolith. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so, lith meaning stone. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, so, but the point is, it's a misnomer to say that this one is a monolith. Not that that really matters. It doesn't matter. It's nomenclature. That's what it looked like, and that's what people described it as. Now, obviously, a lot of folks came around to 2001. Anybody that's seen 2001 knows that it centers around a monolith in the film, no spoilers. I loved both movies, 2001 and 2010, the uh, the something for contact, the race for contact, the year we made contact, here we go, <laughs> with uh, Roy Scheider. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I just loved the message at the end, fills my heart with joy. But the one thing I do remember about the monolith is the dimensions, one by three by nine. And I think when I first saw that as a young person, a real young person, I wondered what significance could that mean? Is that is that a magic number? What's going on there? Is that a, a golden proportion? And now maybe you have the answer to that. And also in the first movie, 2001, one was found buried in the moon. Yeah. So this goes back to Arthur C. Clarke's books on this story. And I only just found this out about two years ago. I didn't know this because I hadn't read those stories. I did read some Arthur C. Clarke when I was younger, including Rendezvous with Rama and a couple of other books, which I really enjoyed. They were fun reads. 
some of the stuff that he wrote in science fiction wound up becoming inventions, like the heads-up display. He crafted that in a story well before the military actually created it. And now my wife's car has one, so it's, like, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, yes. But the, the monoliths that were in the books were different originally, and there's a story behind that. And I want to I want to read a little section here again from Wikipedia based on the stories, because in the story, the monoliths are discovered because they are connected to what is called a tychomagnetic anomaly. And so they're called TMAs, tychomagnetic anomaly. And again, reading a little section on that here from the quote, this refers to the strong magnetic field found somewhere in the lunar crater Tycho by an American scientific satellite. So that's a setup in the story. There is not truly a magnetic field there. That's a story element. But so they call them TMA1 and TMA2. And like you said, Forrest, one of them is buried. And that goes back to the original story in terms of how these were found. And I'll read this little section here. While it is unclear what the composition of the monoliths is, they clearly have mass, which is about the only observation that can be made. In the novel 2010, the crewmen of the spaceship Alexei Leonov measure the mass of TMA2 and find that it has a density slightly higher than that of air. The masses of TMA0 and TMA1 are never revealed by Clark in the stories. Now, in 2001, TMA2 opens up a stargate that takes Dave Bowman on a trip across the universe at faster-than-light speeds and with as much acceleration as the creators of the stargate wish. In 2010, and again in 3001, these are additional stories, TMA2 teleports itself. TMA2 replicates itself by a form of symmetrical binary fission and exponential growth to create thousands or millions of identical monoliths in just a matter of days. Now, in 2010, the many units act to increase the density of Jupiter until stellar ignition is carried out, converting the planet into a miniature star. So uh, there's a lot of interesting things here about these things are basically machines, and they are described in the novels as being controlled by an internal computer, which is uh, something called a von Neumann machine. Mm. Again, this is something I only learned about today, but this is a machine that is self-replicating. It makes copies of itself automatically, internally. So that's what a, a von Neumann machine is. So it tells you a little bit about what these monoliths were in the movie, but well, here's what I was going to talk to you about, Forrest, and the thing that I only just learned a year or two ago, I actually learned about this from my wife. The first design for the monolith for the 2001 film was a tetrahedral pyramid, like one of the pyramids at the, uh, in Giza. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was taken from a 1951 short story, which we've mentioned on the show before, called The Sentinel. And that was an Arthur C. Clarke story as well. So they had this London firm was going to make one of these. And they just were like, this is too difficult. And they recommended a slab instead. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, what was the difficulty in making a pyramid? I don't know. It was supposed to be plexiglass. It was probably just going to be too hard to uh, construct and, and move around, I guess. I'm not sure what the issues were. I think there's books on that, but I don't have that background. Yeah. So I guess Kubrick approved this thing, but he was disappointed with uh, the way it looked on the set, which, according to Wikipedia, led the art director, Anthony Masters, to suggest making it black. So mm. it wasn't a grand design that calls back to the original story. It actually was a change to the original design. Right. Which I think it works better and is more frightening as a monolith than it would have been as a pyramid. It was, it was less yeah. human to me as a monolith. It's still iconic. I mean, if you saw a pyramid, well, we're all familiar with that shape. And there's certainly a lot of mystery that, that goes with that. Yeah. Uh, so that's for, you could say, metaphysical reasons is, uh, is a very iconic shape. But the slab is also more mysterious, I think, is what I'm trying to say, than a pyramid. Yeah. 
there's a lot of parallels you can draw with the monolith and smartphones. <laughs> And oh, the shape of the have, smartphone. Of course, the, yeah, the black screen. Yeah. Uh, he's staring back at it. It's a reflection of us, blah, blah, blah. You How know, has it changed our behavior? All that sort of stuff. If you haven't already thought about that, put that in your noodle and uh, roll it around yeah. a bit. But of course, what people did now with regard to this monolith, which was not black, it was shiny and metallic in nature, was they tried to figure out when it got put there in the desert. And with Google Earth, you can find just about anything. So again, according to Wikipedia and the page for the Utah monolith, <laughs> the uh, Dutch journalist, Nuska Dussar, who specializes in open source intelligence, used Maxar satellite images to determine that it appeared between July 7th, 2016 and October 21st, 2016. It goes on to point out that within 48 hours of the announcement of it, members of the public had reached the site within 48 hours and uploaded photographs and videos of it to social media. And local business owners were actually fearing a surge in foot traffic that could damage local Native American sites and artifacts. So you can see how quickly this thing went from being discovered to being properly mapped, even though no images were revealed, to its timeline being deduced about when it appeared. However, there were not uh, smoking gun pictures of somebody putting it there or a UFO or anything else happening, which wouldn't that be great? If you like, if you went back, if this is man-made and you want to take this prank to a Spiros yeah. Malaris level, you've tampered with the satellite images too. And there's going to be one that they'll find right. back in 2016 of like a circular craft on the ground next to where it was found. <laughs> Yeah, but but in that case, I do want to see the aliens uh, using human means, wearing hard hats. They're propping it up with posts, waiting for the the concrete base to dry with the form, with the concrete form in the ground. They have to work with what they find in the area. Yeah. They have to AT <laughs> shovels. And, yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I would like to see. But that, to me, not to jump ahead, that was also a tip off. In that, after a while, we didn't immediately see somebody claiming this or posting photos of them, either with it in their shop or perhaps planting the thing, or somebody didn't uh, have any spy photos of somebody doing that that they leaked online. And we'll get to those reasons in a minute here, maybe why you wouldn't want to advertise that you were the one who did it. Yeah, and coming back around to the appearance of this thing, it's different from the one in 2001 and 2010 because it is not mm -hmm. rectangular in nature. It is actually triangular. Yeah. It's like if you took an equilateral triangle where the three sides are all the same and you laid it flat on the ground and then mm -hmm. you extruded that straight up, into a column. That's what it appears to be. I don't know if it's perfect. I don't know if the sides are perfect equilaterals, but that's what it looks like in the pictures I've seen it. Yes. Or more easily, you could say it looks like a big metal box of Toblerone. That's a perfect description. <laughs> that, yes. It's a perfect, yeah. No, I mean, before the show here, you were explaining to me, uh, I, you know, I, I just recently looked at the photo here, how it was shaped, because most people who see the photo from the news or whatever, you're looking at it straight ahead. And so it does look like a rectangular slab, not realizing that there are three sides to it, not like the slab in 2001. Right. And if you were coming up on it and you look straight onto one of the sides, you wouldn't know that it's rectangular right. or triangular. Right. You might make an assumption, but it turns out when you go around it, when you circle it, you can see that it's triangular. It's also like one of the, my, my favorite uh, rulers here, because my dad had one as a as an advertising illustrator when he was younger, the ruler with the three sides. And you, right. you flip yes. it over and it's got the inches and centimeters and, and picas and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so and it doesn't roll off the table. So yes, that triangular shape. So picture that, folks. And I wish it was filled with gigantic pieces of chocolate-covered caramels. From another universe. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe not. It's got to be more delicious, right? <laughs> I mean, sure. 
Hi everyone, I'm Margaret, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Alright, so the next thing that we need to ask is, did this come from another planet? What is this monolith mm. doing in the desert? A lot of people, I think, wanted to believe that it was not terrestrial in origin. You know what we do on this show. We talk about all kinds of crazy stuff, but I just, for mm. not even for one-tenth of a second, did I think that it wasn't human-made. Did you? I was hoping. That's fine. Everybody should hope. <laughs> I want to believe. And a couple of years ago, I had a really vivid dream that, yeah, you know, I was just with friends and family and just the general public, and we were just outside, and uh, it was a lovely day and maybe a park or something. And then these things like this, I'll just say large slabs or triangular uh, prism-like structures, things that came down from the sky and they stuck in the ground and they were basically like information kiosks. I'm sorry, you, this was a dream you had? This is a dream I had a, a few years ago. Really? I just now remembered it. That uh, you yeah, wait, like, wait, oh wait, my wait. gosh! Wait, I yeah. want to back up here. Let's back up. Yeah, I'm going to ask Ryan to put in a truck backing up sound here. So... <laughs> You had this dream that triangular-shaped information kiosks came out of the sky and planted themselves in the ground, and on top of that, you only just now remembered that you had this dream, but it was several years ago. Yeah, because you just reminded me. But, uh, well, I wouldn't say, though, they were exactly triangular prism-shaped. Okay. They could have been um, pagoda-shaped. They could have been slabs. You know, it's a dream. It's Everything's kind of amorphous. I just remember these structures, though, uh, that were mysterious. Yeah. And maybe it was, uh, was it uh, the, the Chronicles of Riddick? Their alien ships oh, I uh, never crashed that, yeah. down and then they would come slamming down into the dirt and that was their ship and basically that's how they invaded everybody. And So I know that in Tom Cruise's War of the Worlds, the remake of War of the right. Worlds, which I actually found to be a pretty scary movie, the ships came yeah. down super fast. Like you couldn't even really see them. They, I think they had to in, slow down in video. Lightning. Like in lightning. lightning. That's right. They yeah. came down in lightning. It was really cool. Right. And they went into the earth. And then the invasion, like you said, these things sprang up from the cracks in the earth where those things came down. People have already built towns over them, so it had to have happened hundreds of years ago. Right. Just waiting to happen. Or thousands. Kind of like this monolith. It was there. Somebody put it there waiting to be found. Who puts a monolith somewhere and spends all that time and trudging out to the desert so that no one ever finds it? Of course you want somebody to find it, hopefully within your lifetime. That's the gag I would do. Right. Because I love creating wonder a sense of uh, questioning in people. So in the Chronicles of Riddick, the alien ships led by Colum Fior, Vin Diesel is in it, uh, Carl Urban or whatever, they're the baddies, and that's how the ships implant themselves. My dream, though, is specifically maybe inspired by that, but also these things came down and they had an important message for us, kind of like the 2001 monoliths, except that they weren't monolith shaped. They were more gazebo-like, <laughs> just like the information booths you see on campus at a college where there's a bunch of, there's different sides to it. And there are um, screens or something we're supposed to read. And of course, as the, as dreams go, before this really important intergalactic message popped up on these things, I woke up. Right. No, the idea here is that something came from somewhere else, got stuck in the ground, and it's there for a purpose. Well, so is that what you thought happened here when you first saw this thing? No, again, again, going back to my first thought was that it was placed there, but it's the slow burn discovery art installation. It was everything that I thought I would do is I would make something like that, leave it there. Now, again, I'm not going to want to violate BLM land rules because this was not legal to leave it there. It's considered littering. And just so people know, this BLM is the Bureau of Land Management, which I'll right, talk about here right. in a minute, not Black Lives Matter. But they control huge swaths of the country. You'll be startled 
by how much they control. And if you live in the Southwest or the West, yeah. you know this already. A lot of people in the East don't realize how much land. Right. It's 248 million acres. That's It's a lot of land. <laughs> it's one eighth of the country. Oh, that's interesting. But you got to figure it's the United States and a lot of it is open and uninhabited and just beautifully pristine wildlife area, but it's not just open to go do anything you want. Now, Scott and I have done a tiny bit of overlanding, and so we've looked into this, and you can, there are rules for camping in areas like that. Yes, there are. You have to follow the roads. If you camp, it has to be within like six or 12 feet from the road. You just can't go tearing around wherever you like because the government owns that. Yeah. And originally it was land that was passed up by settlers. So it right. it was government property, you know, or it became government property in some cases yeah, yeah. Uh, because it was um, annexed or taken over an eminent domain from yeah. uh, Native Americans. So there's a lot of that going on. But the reality is that the land is generally overseen by the BLM. And there's been a lot of protests about that from ranchers because ranchers are leasing mm -hmm. uh, land to have their cattle on. And that's that whole stuff. You can go look that up. That's not what this is about tonight. Right. But uh, yeah, if you look at uh, their code for how you use their land and what they call a wilderness area, this is in the code 6302.20. What is prohibited in the wilderness? And the first part of this section says, except as specifically provided in the Wilderness Act, the individual statutes designating the particular BLM wilderness area or the regulations of this part and subject to valid existing rights in BLM wilderness areas, you must not A, operate a commercial enterprise, B, build temporary or permanent roads. This tells you the kind of how big it is. People are there. This right. is the kind of stuff they're worried about. Build aircraft landing strips, heliports, or spots. And there's a whole long list of other things. Use motorized equipment or motorboats or yeah. mechanical transport, land aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the one that applies to the monolith. This is uh, section F. So this is 6302.20 section F. You must not build, install, or erect structures or installations. This includes transmission lines, motels, vacation homes, sheds, uh -huh. stores, resorts, <laughs> organization camps, hunting and fishing lodges, electronic installations, and similar structures other than tents, tarpaulins, temporary corrals, and similar devices for overnight camping. But the bottom line is it's right there in the opening of there. Do not build, install, or erect structures or installations. And this was right. an erected structure. I do like the idea. But even then, for those not in the United States or unfamiliar, uh, there's all these other designations as well. Is it national park land? Is it a national monument land? There's all these different types of uh, designations, not too many, but they all have their own rules and, and what you can and can't do. And certainly getting back to my point is I would not violate that because I respect pristine land but I also believe it should be used and accessible by the average citizen in a responsible manner, yes, let's say. Absolutely. And I've had a lot of fun. I grew up going to these places and I love it, you know, and it's like, you know, if you look at the BLM land on the map, on the websites that show how much land they have, you see that it's the bulk of Nevada and Utah right. and uh, right. fairly large portions of Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and southeastern Oregon. Right. And right. southern Idaho as well. So it's a, there's a lot of land there that they're in control oh, of. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know we seem like we're spread out all over the place, but we actually take up a, a tiny bit of uh, geographical space for the most part, considering everything. But yes, I identified with the mission statement of this, which was to leave something man-made in a very unusual place and uh, just sit back and wait for it to be discovered later. Let's just say that. 
Well, on Twitter, the Bureau of Land Management actually posted the following tweet, one of the branches. I don't know if this is the Utah one or the national one, but it says the, the Utah monolith has prompted discussions about public art and inspired people to visit the site despite efforts to keep it secret. Our department includes the Utah Indian Affairs and Utah History and Utah Arts Museums, and we wanted to raise a couple of important points. First, debates about Utah monolith as an artistic statement shouldn't equate it with rock art. This piece is a contemporary statement. Ancient petroglyphs, pictographs, and rock art are protected archaeological treasures with established cultural and historical significance. While curiosity is understandable, we discourage visiting the monolith. Along with safety concerns, increased crowds threaten the archaeological resources in the area. Unintentional damage is still damage. If you still choose to visit, please do not damage any rock art and don't gather archaeological items such as arrowheads. Leave the area as undisturbed as possible. Finally, while the monolith has better craftsmanship than graffiti, this is still vandalism. It irreversibly altered the natural environment on public lands. While the monolith is interesting, we cannot condone vandalism of any type. That was November 28th, um, signed uh -huh. Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. So that's what's going on there. And there's another one here. It's another tweet. This is from BLM Utah, uh, an official statement. Although we can't comment on active investigations, we would like to remind public land visitors that using, occupying, or developing the public lands or their resources without a required authorization is illegal, no matter what planet you are from. Ah, a little <laughs> sense of humor there. Yeah, so, you know, they're trying to get the bottom of it, but they also, they don't want a lot of people coming out there and trampling. And it's at this point with everyone has been locked up in their houses and at COVID and yeah. all that, and people are like, an adventure, you know, and everyone wanted to go out and do this. But the, but the problem yeah. is where it was, there weren't really any roads. You had to hike to it. That's a little bit dangerous, but also you can run into uh, a situation where you're really degrading the environment there. And so going to this place is some kind of mecca, while exciting and interesting uh, on one level, in another way, there's just, we just told you, there's an eighth of the country you can get to here. There's a lot of really cool stuff to see. We don't all have right. to go to one place. I don't care what's there. Yeah. So that's the first <laughs> thing I want to say about it. But all of those tweets and messages actually preceded this thing being taken down. In a message now dated November 28th at 4.39 p.m. from the Bureau of Land Management, Utah, quote, here is our official statement on the rumors surrounding the monolith. We have received credible reports that the illegally installed structure, referred to as the monolith, has been removed from Bureau of Land Management public lands by an unknown party. The BLM did not remove the structure, which is considered private property. We do not investigate crimes involving private property, which are handled by the local sheriff's office. The structure has received international and national attention, and we received reports that a person or group removed it on the evening of November 27th. Yes, and you mean uh, private property, not the land. You're talking about the structure itself. Yeah, the structure itself. So they would have referred it to the local sheriff, apparently, Yeah. to try and investigate whose it was. But you can see what their concerns are about it. Now, it turns out that all these people are hiking to it, trying to get to it. Among these people is a photographer who is a professional photographer and a drone pilot. His name is Ross Bernards. And Ross has an Instagram, and he posted a story on Instagram about what he found when he went there to take pictures of it that definitely went internationally viral. I want to read this post to you guys if you haven't heard it yet. And this is accompanied with pictures at his account. We'll have a link to his Instagram account if you want to check it out. If you're interested in what exactly happened to the monolith, keep reading, because I was literally there. On Friday, 
three friends and myself drove the six hours down to the middle of nowhere in Utah and got to the trailhead, in quotes, around 7 p.m. after passing a sea of cars on our way in. We passed one group as we hiked towards the mysterious monolith, while another group was there when we arrived, and they left pretty quick after we got there. For the next hour and 40 minutes, we had the place to ourselves. I had just finished taking some photos of the monolith under the moonlight and was taking a break, thinking about settings I needed to change for my last battery of drone flight when we heard some voices coming up the canyon. We were contemplating packing up our things as they walked up so they could enjoy it for themselves like we did. At this point, I looked down at my watch, and it was 8.40 p.m. Four guys rounded the corner, and two of them walked forward. They gave a couple of pushes on the monolith, and one of them said, You better have got your pictures. He then gave it a big push, and it went over, leaning to one side. He yelled back to his other friends that they didn't need the tools. The other guy with him at the monolith then said, This is why you don't leave trash in the desert. Then all four of them came up and pushed it almost to the ground on one side before they decided to push it back the other when it then popped out and landed on the ground with a loud bang. They quickly broke it apart, and as they were carrying it to the wheelbarrow that they had brought, one of them looked back at us all and said, leave no trace. That was at 8.48 p.m. Okay, so the two groups had acknowledged each other, right? They met us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we got the photographer here and the drone pilot. He's there taking all his cool shots. And they find these other people are coming in and they're like, you know what? We'll get out of here. Let them enjoy it. But this team, this was the wrecking crew that had come in. And these are the Mm. unknown individuals that the BLM is referring to taking it down, whoever they were. Right, right. But here's the part that I want to mention is the fact that they said, leave no trace. We're going to come back to that in a second, if that's a phrase you Mm. haven't heard. If you live out in the West, you've heard it on the East Coast. A lot of people maybe have not heard it unless you uh, like to go up in the mountains a lot and, and hiking a lot. Russ goes on to say, if you're asking why we didn't stop them, well, they were right to take it out. We stayed the night and the next day hiked to a hilltop overlooking the area where we saw at least 70 different cars and a plane in and out. Cars parking everywhere in the delicate desert landscape. Nobody following a path or each other. We could literally see people trying to approach it from every direction to try and reach it, permanently altering the untouched landscape. Mother Nature is an artist. It's best to leave the art in the wild to her. So a pretty Mm. well thought out post. But that's the story of the monolith, which all played out in just a matter of days. And now it's gone. And there's photos of where it stood, which is how you can tell that it was an equilateral triangle that could because it was cut into the rock. Someone cut the stone down. You're talking about the base. You're talking about the base. Yeah. Gauging again that it's been there for at least four years, right? Yeah. Somebody cut a triangle into the rock, planted this thing, and then uh, probably put the dirt around it. In that time, the weather conditions and the wind and the rain had uh, smoothed out the dirt around it. So it looked like it was just stuck in there. Yes, exactly. Okay. And this this is the way I see these guys that took it down. They're interested in environmental justice. Now, when I was younger, I used to, I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. I love to uh, read Edward Abbey, who wrote a book called The Monkey Ridge Gang, which was a little bit more about eco-terrorism, which is more extreme, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a good book. It's an entertaining book, but it's, there is a, a sense that uh, there are people that really want to protect the Southwest and especially these pristine areas, uh, whether BLM's managing it or not. Humans have come to realize that when something becomes really, really popular, it's very easy for it to get permanently damaged. And the experience of it for other folks is ruined, but also uh, what it is can be ruined along the way. So 
as people have become more cognizant of what happens when everyone is camping in the same place or a lot of people are going to the same spot, certain habits have been developed or ideals, I should say, about the best way to proceed there. And one of them is called leave no trace or, you know, you pack in this is the simplest form of this is pack in, pack out. You take in what you take. You bring out everything that you take in with you. There's actually a Leave No Trace organization called uh, LNT.org, and they have seven principles. The first one is plan ahead and prepare. The second is travel and camp on durable surfaces. Third, dispose of waste properly. Fourth, leave what you find. Fifth, minimize campfire impacts. Sixth, respect wildlife. And seven, be considerate of other visitors. When you do all of this, that's the leave no trace idea. And that's essentially what these folks said when they went and removed that thing. And probably none too soon, because it was interesting that the BLM seemed like they couldn't take it out because there needed to be an investigation. And then that would have had to go to the sheriff's department. The sheriff's probably like, I don't care when this thing was built. No. Like, we're not going to waste someone time just needs driving to take in, it down. Yeah. And it, yeah, because or it just when, stays there. Yeah. Because when Russ describes like coming out of there and there's just cars coming from every direction and people trampling through, it's like, it's not good. It's not good. It's got to go. While it was great for our imaginations and it was a neat thing to discover. And like you said, in terms of the long con, this was pretty amazing prank. Again, we still need that UFO on one of the satellite images from when it appeared, but this thing I think was all too human. That's my assessment of it. However, almost immediately, one popped up in Romania, and this one was different. I'm going to read about this little section. On November 26th, 2020, a monolith similar to the one found in Utah was discovered in Romania on Bacha Domini Hill, I'm probably not saying that right, in the city of Piatra Nimt near the historical Petrodava Dacian Fortress. The monolith was found on private property and was quoted as having been placed there illegally. The case is currently under investigation. Journal FM, that's J-U-R-N-A-L, and I'm probably saying that wrong too, stated on November 27th, they had actually, quote, received a mail containing a clip and some photos regarding a strange structure found on a hill, end quote, on the preceding Tuesday, notably prior to the disappearance of the Utah monolith. The clip points out the structure's similarity to the Utah monolith while also highlighting major differences in its reflective properties and texture. On November 29th, Journal FM published an update that the monolith from Romania had also disappeared, mentioning that a bright light had been reported, though it did not provide a specific source for that report. Locals thought the light came from a car, but the light pointed towards the sky. In the morning, the place where the monolith stood erect was empty, only a faint imprint remains on the ground covered by snow. Okay, that one's alien. Now, Okay, but listen to this last little paragraph. Again, this is from <laughs> right, the okay. Wikipedia page for the Utah one. On December 1st, a local newspaper, Ziar Piatra Nimt, confirmed to Reuters that the Romanian monolith had disappeared. The paper made the additional claim that a, quote, bad local welder, end quote, had, quote, apparently made the item, though that person's identity remains unknown. A bad well, local on. welder. How many, wait, yeah. wait, how do you know? If, and do they mean bad, like he's a bad character or he's not good at welding? I don't know what's Just happening. Just a low Yelp score, I think. <laughs> yeah, he's got one and a half to two stars at best. And uh, people, look, it, it, depending on the size of the town, people probably know who it is, maybe. Yeah. And there's the thing about it. It depends on what type of land that you're on doing this kind of stuff. If you own the land and you're not causing too much of a stink, I say do whatever you feel makes you happy. Georgia Guidestones, uh, <laughs> right? Aren't they yeah, on private or, land? 
Or yeah, you could uh, bury a row of Cadillacs into the ground and, and make a tourist attraction if it's your land. And of course, you're not uh, fouling the, the dirt with uh, used motor oil. So I believe in people using the land to express themselves. We live here. That's Humans have been doing that uh, since the beginning. But the Romanian case here is interesting in that it also disappeared, but apparently there are no reports of anybody seeing it being put up or taken down, right? Yeah, from very, very cursory. Like I spent almost, yeah, of course, almost 10 I, minutes there's, looking into this earlier today. <laughs> there's no <laughs> reason to do more. But the but the idea with the, with the Utah Monument, it also sounds like one we know from the dismantling of it, if we are to believe this account, is that it's not solid. No, it, it wasn't. It was probably just panels of, uh, yeah, stainless steel or some kind of uh, chromed steel or something and was easily dismantled. Also, pointing to the bad welder. Yeah. His welds weren't good. It, they were easily dismantled. By the way, the one in Utah, they did mention that it had uh, rivets that when they took it apart. Yeah. Right, because those guys, uh, the photographer and his friends helped pick up the little pieces, right? Yes, and everybody, because they picked pop. up every piece, leave no trace. They picked up everything yeah. they could, yeah. Well, here's the other thing I wanted to note as well, is that uh, the one in Utah, though, was nine feet tall, right? About uh, thereabouts. Yes, I believe so, yeah. 291 centimeters tall. About nine and a half feet tall. So as we said, the monolith in 2001 was nine for the dimensions one by three by nine means something. And uh, you sci-fi readers of, uh, of large books will be able to tell us that, but about three meters tall. Yeah, but again, remember the 2001 one was created out of necessity. It was not yeah. the one that Clark wrote about. He wrote about a uh, tetrahedral pyramid originally. Right. Well, here's my other point though, is that a good friend of mine who she taught film fairly recently here. She, uh, you know, also is a huge Kubrick fan like myself. And she asked me when the story popped up, hey, did you see the Kubrick exhibition at LACMA? That's the LA County Museum of Art. And she says the original monolith was there. Uh, as with much of Hollywood in person, it's much smaller than you'd expect. So that's, <laughs> again, it's easier to shoot with. And, and this is going to be to another point about who put this there perhaps, or who were these fellas? With Hollywood, it's like you don't over, you know, yes, they do spend and waste a lot of money on sets and different things that are never used, but you don't want to make it so big that it's unwieldy or, you know, bigger than you need to. So this thing was actually pretty large at nine and a half feet tall. Yeah, it's big. Yeah, so the one in 2001 is much smaller, but uh, you only build what you need to shoot. In figuring out, uh, I, I know you love these guys, and I, I do love the idea of it, but it's good old Officer Reddit. Yeah. Who comes up with, uh, and I'm fine with all that. I'm fine with uh, finding out the location, different things about it. But once people start speculating, and they're not really experts in that field, it drives me insane. No, I feel like they've gotten a little better about doxing suspects that were not. That oh, God, not, you yeah, know, that was awful. Yeah, there yeah. was some awful stuff that's happened. They seem to be, you know, I think the mods have a better handle on managing that stuff now. And there will be a lesson learned from this one, too, because I think probably the folks that posted the location of this if they had to do it again, realizing how many people went there and everything, they might say, right. you know what, I don't know if I would have done that. So right. Um, right. that's the thing. I was thinking there's a new show. I don't, I can't remember if it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Uh, my wife had it on. I just caught it after it started. And I was telling you about this show earlier today called World's Most Wanted. And each episode oh. is about these really <laughs> like hardcore yes. criminals or fugitives. And the very first one was about a famous Cosa Nostra figure. And one of the characters in it was that, like, that guy's best friend who had turned state's evidence, uh, for lack of a mm -hmm. better word, and was cooperating with the Italian police. And that guy was riding in a car 
talking on camera and he's just like, I never tell people where I live. This is a guy, by the yeah. way, who they had kidnapped his like nine or 10 year old son and held him prisoner for 700 days and then killed him Ugh, to yeah. punish him for cooperating. And he's on camera riding in a car talking about how I don't tell people where I live. And me as an editor and whatever else I'm thinking, I feel like if you know, if he just drives by one landmark, you're right. like, you can figure this out you, uh, these yeah. days. You know, of course, and we know because we've talked to some folks that have shot some of this Discovery Channel stuff recently in this past year where they've gone out to look at something mysterious or whatever. And what you see on TV is them saying, well, it's over here and they're taking you to location. But they don't want right. to reveal the location. And the reality is that um, they actually didn't go to the real location for the shoot. They just pretended to be at the real location. <laughs> and they right. film Mr. X because it's the same thing with like, well, we're going down this river. I watched something the other day where they recently discovered the uh, Clotilda. It's a famous, uh, one of the last slave ships to come to the United mm -hmm. States. And they found it in this river, I believe in Louisiana. It's a really amazing piece on it, again, on Netflix or somewhere. And uh, they don't want to say where that is, but they're like, right. we get to go out and run a side sonar on it because it's only in 20 feet of water. So then they show the boat and the sonar going in the water. But the reality is, folks, those guys are nowhere near where it actually is when they're filming it because they don't want you to see anything. So maybe that's the case with the yeah. Cosa Nostra yeah. guy. Maybe he's like, <laughs> maybe he went to another, you know, another part of Italy to be filmed. But I would be nervous, especially with that it would dude, be I'd be nervous. Smart. Well, it's like the PGF, even after all these years. That's what years, I was about to say, yes. Yeah. I was about to say. There's people, a couple of trees still standing there in the right way if you can look past yeah. the new growth and all that kind of stuff. Right. I'm sorry. When, when I say PGF, I, recently we had some criticism for a lot of inside baseball. That's the Patterson-Gimlin film, <laughs> the famous Bigfoot movie, the one that you've right. all seen. If you've ever seen a Bigfoot movie in your life of the Bigfoot walking across the river, we did a series on yeah. it. If you missed it, that's fine. It's a long series. But when we say PGF, we're referring to that famous Bigfoot movie. What I was going to say, getting back to who who may have done this, one of the big theories was it was left by a movie production company. And more specifically, the shooting of Westworld, which I just got through up until I think I just we just finished season three. So I was really into it. I know you stopped early on, but like, OK, I could kind of see that. But here's why I canceled that right away, that it's not a movie prop. It's not a piece of a movie set. It's not a shooting location, even though they they have been shooting around there. But like you said, that's very tightly controlled, because when you have a movie on location, you're talking about a 150, 200 people, perhaps, or more, and big trucks and things that have to be brought yeah, in. Yeah, you couldn't get near that with a big production. I did yeah. think of a still shoot, though, but like a still or a fashion shoot, amateur photographer, but you'd yes. still have to make a big commitment to build something nine feet tall and yeah. permanently embed it. It doesn't seem like the right thing. And by the way, what you probably don't know is that on the uh, on the Wikipedia page, it says, mm -hmm. uh, there's a quote that says, the Utah Film Commission said that to their knowledge, the monolith was not part of any film production. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'd read that too. It's like, yeah. so, okay, so then you'd have to do it surreptitiously. And look, I've had a lot of friends uh, that have worked on big time feature films. Anybody who's going to go to that much trouble, uh, what I would say, and again, one of my best friends was a, a prop master is that a film production company would not leave that there. Right. If you're going to leave some set pieces, they're going to be watched or it's going to be a special arrangement or they're going to be protected because they follow the rules because they want to come back there and shoot again. They don't want to get fined. They don't want to lose their license or their permit to shoot in these famous places. 
and generally they don't go that way out. I mean, that's why we've seen the Gorn at uh, Vasquez Rocks, which is just outside of uh, north of LA uh, city limits, I believe. And I've been there to shoot. It's very I've iconic. I've been there off-roading. So <laughs> yes, so many movies are shot there because that's easier. You're not going to drive six hours to get to this remote thing. Case in point, I love uh, Breaking Bad. Guess where a lot of desert vistas were shot? Right outside the production company office where they just turn the camera away from the building. And then you have this lovely vista. But nobody knows. It's just out in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. Yeah. And yeah, also props, things like this, that gets accounted for. That comes back to the production. And a lot of times, uh, back when I was at USC and I took a, a production scheduling class, and you get a lot of great inside stories about uh, prop masters and scenic people. And especially for this one guy, I heard this story from my instructor uh, where he'd worked on so many Westerns. And then one day he went to his house. It was entirely decorated with movie props, which was not kosher. <laughs> You're right. not supposed to do that. Right. That's supposed to go back to uh, Warner Brothers, uh, the movie studio who were paid for the props in the first place or the scene. Those guys hijack they, that stuff all the time, though. I mean, they do small yeah. stuff, but this one, like like I said, this one's a pretty obvious piece. Like, uh, yeah, who uh, who ended up with that triangular metal thing? Like, yeah. nobody knows. It's like, okay, go back and get it. Yeah. And I've heard tons of stories also of celebrities, a lot of them expecting just to go home with props or they just take them. It's like, well, I'm sorry, you can't just walk away with that. You can buy it from the production because that goes towards the budget. If there's any leftover, sometimes the producers take it or they will buy it or they will just exchange it or they'll just nab it. That just wouldn't be left there if you are a follow the rules kind of film or TV production. Because there's a lot of liability exposure. That's one thing. If Because if it is well, yeah. there and then it's not built to the standards that uh, things that are in the United States have to be safe and all that. And someone goes, oh, look at this. And they cut their hand open right. or off or it falls on them and crushes them or whatever else. Then yeah. you can bet they're going to figure out who built it. And the lawsuit right. is going to be against Universal or Walt Disney right. or whoever. And they're going to be yeah. like, oh, no, this is all on um, the grip yeah. that left it in the in the right. valley. You know, we <laughs> thought we had it. So Now, of course, we're going to get emails from uh, set production people saying like, oh, well, there this one time we were shooting this uh, Tom Selleck movie and we left this thing out. Yeah, so that happens. Yeah. So it probably does happen, but it's not supposed to, is, is what I would say. Well, no. That, and uh, it, the, the thing I was sad to learn back in the day was that uh, all those custom cars and trucks and everything they build for movies are usually destroyed as soon as it's done because they're not street legal. No, that's what I'm saying. They're either stored somewhere, they're handled, uh, they're taken care of. People don't just leave stuff. Yeah. You might have a production company goofing around. Look, you have a lot of time where you're just, it's downtime. They might goof around and leave a little prank thing while they're there shooting. Well, let's wrap this up. This is the only thing I want to say is where are you at with this? I'm at, given all possible thoughts about it, I, I do think it is it is definitely pranky. And I think it, it it might be an art installation of some kind or a performance art situation. I don't think it was necessarily just to put it there and watch what happened when people found it. I, th I think it maybe was creatively, it might've had a little more behind it than that, but I- uh, Wait, what, what are you saying? What are you saying? That that uh, people were going to go look at it, uh, people in the know, it well, was I, meant to be seen by certain folks? No, I think, I think an artist might've said, you know, I'm not just putting this up to abandon it. I want right. people to explore the idea of industrial combining with rocks. Like I can see a speech. <laughs> I can see a speech yeah. from an artist. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, not, yes, and I'm not yes. making fun of them. I'm saying, I feel no, like no, no. It, it probably no. had a higher value than just like, I'm gonna put this thing here and see what happens <laughs> you know so that's kind of like okay that's more me yes but uh, no i'm because i'm not making a statement other than like uh i want people to walk up and we're like what the heck is this in the middle of nowhere it doesn't make any sense 
no, I'm I'm down with your uh, I'm down uh, with that line there. That again, it's knowing that it's there is the satisfaction, and maybe one day, if you make it well enough, it's an idea, and that it's going to be here for another thirty thousand years when a lot of things probably will have blown away. So, in that sense, yeah, I, I could see it uh, as I said at the beginning. I think it's uh, some kind of an art installation, and. Uh, nothing really paranormal about it. But however, what I would like to happen now is that tomorrow morning, another one shows up and this one sings and answers questions. Oh, there's going to be more of them, but I don't know. Well, if I, get I know, you, I know you're, you're laughing at, you're laughing yeah. at me, but yes, yeah. there, there will be tons more, but there's a story that we have to drill down on. And I, I have, I've teased the idea, pitched the idea to him that we look into this uh, because I heard this uh, one phrase in a line from the Bible code two by Bruce. Strauss name? Yes. And that he mentioned the legend of the singing obelisk, uh, some type of uh, a precious gemstone constructed obelisk, or uh, there's some part of it that is like, it just reminded me of the emerald tablet of uh, of hermetic lore from uh, Hermes Trismegistus. And this thing has got knowledge in it, and but apparently you can ask it questions. And I've got some questions, you can bet you. So I'm hoping that, yes, it turns into something miraculous, but that's just me because I like magical thinking. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Tina. Now back to the show. All right. Well, for this show tonight, as we said in the cold open, we uncovered two different things we wanted to talk about. We decided to segment this one. You've just heard the first one. Yes. Uh, we couldn't let that monolith thing go. But uh, Forrest dug up another story we're both pretty excited to talk about tonight. And it works because it sort of has, well, not really a Christmas vibe, but it did happen around Christmas time. I don't think Santa's responsible, but you tell me, Scott. So. Yeah, yeah. That you'll you'll have to <laughs> you you'll have to let me hear the story, and then I'll make my okay. assessment. Um, but uh, so this one is about, uh, it's really just kind of about strange sounds, isn't it? I don't really understand this story. That's, okay, first off, I just now thought of this, as we so often do, is that some of the noises people heard, it could have been Santa. Right. That's how strange this story is. Like I thought about just now, like, yeah, somebody making a racket on your roof, like, okay, and there is a talk of a chimney. That's so weird that that came together. So I got to admit, I I just Googled weird Christmas stories or Christmas mysteries. And guess what popped up? A, a, a really fun article on Listverse. L-I-S-T-B-E-R-S-E. Oh, yeah. They're always fun reading. And uh, you get a kernel of a rabbit hole trail. Well, that sounds distasteful. But you follow <laughs> it uh, down to some bigger stories if you want. Or they're just really good bite size mysteries usually, or really interesting things. So this one was called 10 Unsolved Christmas Time Mysteries. And uh, this was put together, called together by Robin Warder. Robin Warder? Really? Yeah. I oh, just, wait, now uh, I have to look at this link. I've been looking at this link with you for a couple of days now, and I didn't realize I know, we that haven't he noticed that. <laughs> That's We're making all kinds of discoveries tonight uh, for a Christmassy type of present. Yeah, this is a little bit serendipitous. And this was all the way back in uh, 2014. Here's the thing about Robin Warder. Mm. This is really mm -hmm. strange. Two years after this, he started a podcast, which I hadn't even mm -hmm. heard of until about two or three months ago, called The Trail Went Cold, which is a cold case show. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, so my wife has been listening to it a lot. She was like, hey, can I play this when we, you know, when we go to bed, we can't like sleep or whatever. Yeah. It's something to help us uh, drift off. And uh, no offense, Robin, if you hear this, uh, <laughs> we, we actually don't get to sleep until your episodes are right. done. Unlike us, when people hit play, they're gone in five minutes. But uh, <laughs> yes, well, that's why they tune in. And that's fine. That's fine. That's like fine. I, no, like it's I totally said, fine. just, just, pick yeah, it up just the next buy a day. quick toothbrush. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, what I was going to say is we've been listening to your show uh, nightly for several weeks now and uh, he has a lot of episodes his first one was way back in 2016 February 2016 and I just two weeks ago or three weeks ago maybe sent one of them to Forrest because it was a really freaky story now he doesn't do paranormal stuff these are cold cases he's not leaning that way at all but there's sometimes the circumstances around them are so bizarre and there was one uh, about a guy named Zygmunt Adamski and it's not George Adamski it's not the UFO thing this is a different Adamski they keep getting in trouble I guess it's a really really weird story I'm not going to get into all of it now but uh, Robin just want to say we really enjoy your show and if you guys want to listen to a, a neat show about cold cases Look for The Trail Went Cold wherever you get your podcasts. The other thing that's really strange about this particular one that I just sent to Forrest is that it is episode 196 of his show. And this show that you're listening to right now is episode 196 of Astonishing Legends. And this is all a coincidence. So, yeah, that's crazy. Christmassy yeah. and spooky. Christmassy yes, and spooky. That's, uh... So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, the Adamski story is a, is a, is a real head scratcher. Yeah, I want to cover it. I, I was contemplating reaching out to him and trying to trade some research and maybe we do it next year and have him on to talk a little bit about it. So, yeah, yeah. But anyway, he's, uh, for this one, he's collected 10 bizarre Christmas time mysteries that are unsolved, of course. And uh, as I was telling Scott, I was kind of skimming through this and I'd already sent the link to Scott and Tess for just to run it by them. And uh, there's one that kind of stood out because uh, most of these are pretty dark. And so the one that's not so dark, and maybe we'll talk about this at the end if we have some time, is the spontaneous combustion of Matilda Rooney that comes in at number 10 at the top of the list here. And who doesn't like that? But it is kind of sad. It's just it's just strange. We've never done a SHC episode either. We're going to have to get to that just to look into the phenomenon. Uh, but spontaneous human combustion. Sorry, you can't just I, I do the again. acronym. You got to explain no, to people. Don't. The rest of these though, are are kind of dark <laughs> and they relate to murder. And um, even though they happen on or around Christmas time, maybe not so appropriate for us. But one that did jump out at me was called the Warminster Thing. Okay. <laughs> the name was vaguely familiar, but it's, I got to admit, I, it's not one that I knew all the details right away. It's like, and certainly the, the part of the title thing didn't really jump out at me oh, right yeah. away. So, uh, of course that caught my attention and it had to do with very strange sounds, you could say, that, uh, were quite baffling, heard by a lot of different people and it didn't stop there, nor did it start there. But of course, the uh, unofficial, I guess you could say, consensus or general public opinion is that it started on Christmas Day in 1964. Wait, wait, wait. I just want to, normally what we've learned over the history of our show here is nine times out of 10, and I don't know if you looked this up and if you didn't, it's okay, but a journalist will name or mistakenly name the event or this, so are we talking about like a super creative journalist was just like, yeah. um, let's just, go, let's just go with the thing, the Warminster thing. That's the best you got. No, it's, it's, uh, uh, no, you'll love this even more because in a way it was crowdsourced. Like, oh, I know okay. you're hundreds of thousands of officer reddits out there coming up with a name and that's, uh, officer actually Reddit the, the, reporting uh, for duty, reporting to the I, internet. <laughs> but here for this story, boy, I'll tell you, it, it really, opened up. It blossomed. It was a Christmas present 
with a smaller box inside and a smaller box inside that and a smaller box inside that. Actually, it went in reverse because it got to be a bigger story than what you just think it might be here with some weird audio phenomena. Yeah. So this is the Russian nesting doll of paranormal Christmas stories. Yeah, I guess so in a, in a way, but except a building or or the more that you uh, layers you uncover, the bigger the story gets in a weird way. Or let's just say it gets weirder. And that's what Robin Warder's article on listverse.com did really well in that it sparked some interest. It's like, well, what is this? And then I did some digging on my own and the story was much bigger than I ever could have anticipated. And I'm surprised. It's uh, Even all the people that write about it say it's not really one of the more well-known incidents or flaps or waves that had happened. And when you read about it, you kind of wonder why. For, for some reason, it just kind of faded uh, for most of the general public's uh, psyche, especially those who do cover UFO mysteries, it's not one that's often covered. We get all the other, uh, the Gulf Breeze incident, the uh, Allagash, all, all your great UFO stories, but uh, this one is um, not covered all that much, I would say. So here's the deal. I then found some sources. Uh, one is called The Womanster Thing. And some of the sources here are actually pretty interesting. And it's, uh, I gotta say, this could have been an episode on its own. There is a lot going on here because it happened uh, over quite a long period of time. And it was seen by so many people that there are a lot of weird reports. And in a way, it is like the weirdness that happened around Skinwalker Ranch. Not as thorough, but there is definitely some weirdness that was seen by more than just a few people. So one of the sources here is uh, the Warminster Thing, UFOs and Supernatural Disturbances in Small Town, England, it's an article on AboveTopSecret.com, you know, one of their UFO forums, great place to find information here. And it was posted by Mirage Man on September 7th, 2015 at 4.53 p.m. That's one that we're going to follow pretty closely because as I discovered with the information he had, he's called it from a lot of the same sources. And uh, there's some major sources here and he's, uh, what, what he's done that's good is put it all into a narrative. So we'll follow that one pretty closely for some of the way. Another one is um, an article called The Thing, celebrates 50th anniversary at Warminster, posted by Alejandro Rojas, our friend, on January 28, 2015, on his site, openminds.tv. He's a, another great go-to source. Uh, another one, though, this is pretty interesting here. This was probably the, it seems to me like one of the more official repositories of information on this case. It's a website, ufo Warminster. .co.uk. And it's a website edited and hosted by Steve Dewey and Kevin Goodman. And the descriptions of these guys on the website says, uh, Steve Dewey is the co-author with John Reese of In Alien Heat. That is a book that they wrote on uh, some of this alien phenomenon. And this book is a historical and cultural appraisal of the Warminster phenomenon. Steve is skeptical about UFOs and other related phenomena. Another one of the authors of the site is Kevin Goodman. Now keep that name in mind because uh, with Stephen Dewey, they are authors of the book UFO Warminster, Cradle of Contact. And the description says, this book chronicles the events Kevin and his friends experienced in the town during the mid-1970s. Kevin has a more open mind on the Warminster mystery. This guy was there. Kevin Goodman lived through it. He was, he was right there in the town when it happened and he became fascinated by it and started chronicling it and keeping notes and eventually wrote a book. And so he's the keeper of a lot of this information on this website. It doesn't look like maybe it's it's updated uh, all that much, but it's a good source. So that's one of them. There is a article that we're also going to uh, follow the, the curves on pretty closely here by Kevin Goodman 
on the BBC News website called The Mystery of Warminster's UFO by Kevin Goodman. Uh, and he's listed, his byline is UFO expert. So I would say after years and years of study, he probably is. But in any case, in, in diving into the description here of what happened, you know, though this event is generally described in some reports, uh, articles, books, and and generally on the internet as beginning on Christmas Day, 1964, in the small town of Womanstow, England, strange occurrences have been happening for decades in the area, since way before the 1960s, and they likely continue to this day, although they, they die down. We know how these things work, right, Scott? I mean, yeah. they, they, they come in waves. That's why they call them that. Activity dies down, and then for some reason, it can ramp up again. Well, what some call a UFO flap around Warminster, the collections of sightings, and events, they just don't have your regular elements of mass UFO sightings or, or mass UFO flaps, uh, you know, with witnesses seeing various craft, secret government retrievals and reported abductions, and the flap doesn't have any exactly defined beginning or end. This one doesn't. Well, this really beginning Christmas Day 1964 is what's stuck, although right. weird things have been happening, but this was probably a crescendo happening on a very memorable day for a lot of people. So that's why it's stuck here. But the central story of the Warminster thing, it's more like a high point of high strangeness events with accounts of strange indeterminate objects in the sky, some seeming like UFOs, others not, uh, livestock disappearing, and encounters with humanoid alien beings, which hmm. we hope to get to. And uh, it's not just a false teaser here. <laughs> But let's describe Warminster. So it's a garrison town and civil parish of about 17,000 inhabitants in the western part of the county of Wiltshire in southwestern England. And described by some as sleepy and located in crop circle country, <laughs> Warminster sits on the western edge of Salisbury Plain. Now, have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, I've been there. Other than the steak, which yeah. I, I love the Salisbury steak, but yes. uh, just all joking <laughs> aside, Salisbury Plain, Salisbury Plain, it's famous for its rocks, most notably the Stonehenge and Avebury Stone Circles, as well as other ancient landmarks. And Wiltshire County also has training facilities for the British Army. Also in Warminster is the Minster Church of St. Denis, or St. Denis, I guess if you're French. And it dates back to the 11th century, and that stands near the River Weir, or perhaps wire. It's spelled W-E-R-E. -E. So I, I could not find a pronunciation for that. My apologies, but uh, river, were, or wire. And that runs through the town. So I don't know, perhaps it's the presence of these prehistoric standing stones about 15 miles away from the town and uh, the river running through it that has something to do with all the high strangeness. Who knows? You be the judge. So now we have the coming of the thing. Although there was no verified sighting of any UFO craft, Christmas Day 1964 is generally thought of as the beginning of the coming of the thing. <laughs> Let me explain. Around 1.20 a.m., Mildred Head, who was a local resident of Warminster, reported being awoken by a strange sound she described as sounding like leaves and twigs being dragged across her roof. The sound then changed into what sounded like large hailstones hitting it. Now here's a quote from Mildred, I believe that showed up in the paper. Our ceiling came alive with strange sounds that lashed our roof, as if twigs were brushing the tiles, ended up with a noise like giant hailstones. But when Mildred looked out her bedroom window, the weather was clear and dry. The strange noises turned into a disturbing hum, 
which slowly gained in volume before lowering into a low whisper noise, but no one could tell where the sounds were coming from. Before sunrise on Christmas morning that year, about 30 British soldiers training at Nook Camp, a few miles from Warminster in Hatesbury, were also awakened by a strange loud sound. The duty sergeant reported the noise as, quote, it was as if a huge chimney stack from the main block was ripped from the rooftop, then scattered in solid chunks of masonry across the whole camp area, end quote. Royal military police searched the area, but nothing was found that could have made that noise. At about 6.12 a.m., another local resident, Marjorie Bai, was on her way to Christ Church in Warminster, when she not only heard, but felt the bizarre noises. As I believe it was described in the local newspaper, the Warminster Journal, uh, which also later ran stories of accounts from the townsfolk, quote, The sonic deluge broke with full fury on an ordinary housewife. Weirdly crackling noises, menacing sound, sudden vibrations, shockwaves of violent force, end quote from the paper. Marjorie Bai also described feeling the very loud, high-pitched and piercing sound as pounding at her temples, neck, and shoulders. But Marjorie also couldn't tell what was making the horrific noises. As Rob and Warder's article states, Bai was so overwhelmed by vibrating noises that she was knocked to the ground and rendered unable to move. In her own words, she was, quote, pinned down by the invisible fingers of sound, end quote. Also around 6 a.m., Roger Rump of South Warminster, the head postmaster there, get your jokes in, Scott. <laughs> uh, you're going to stop I, I, you I was going to say, sorry, who? <laughs> I'm sorry, what was his Roger name? Rump, Roger, Roger Rump. Rump. R-U-M-P. And I'm sure if you're English, it's not that funny. I feel like it's funny either way. Okay. Uh, Well, Mr. Rump, again, the head postmaster there. So, uh, you know, these job titles are, uh, people find importance in them because uh, it makes you sound more credible, I guess. He also reported hearing something similar to Marjorie Bai. Also, a loud, intense noise, which was described as, quote, pounding on the roof of his home. A terrific clatter scrambling sound, end quote. Like the tiles were being shaken off the rooftops and then slammed back down by some unknown compelling and powerful force. That's a little Yatlov reference for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the point here to do understand about these uh, sounds is that something massive and forceful, violent, would have to have created the sound. It's not like a tree branch uh, just scraping with the wind across your roof tiles. And just the specific descriptions of these. Anyway, Roger Rump also heard something similar to what Mildred Head had heard afterwards, a weird humming noise that lasted for a couple of minutes before fading away. From that Christmas morning on and through the winter of 1965, quite a few townspeople of Warminster were reporting hearing these loud, freakish sounds, which many had described as quote-unquote sonic attacks because of their violent nature, and eventually they started calling it The Thing. And there you go, Scott. It was the townsfolk. Okay. And some people even reported being so adversely affected by the noises that they were thrown to the ground, like like Marjorie here. Wow. Yeah, imagine that. I mean, it's one thing to hear something, but I remember with Dyatlov, we were talking about uh, infrasound and how certain sounds and vibrations could actually possibly make you sick or maybe even knock you down. Yes, and they have a tremendous effect. And I, I talked about that giant uh, whistle being blown, uh, like a referee's whistle, but it's like 15 feet tall. 
and uh, that vibration uh, making you sick. And then uh, another listener pointed out that there was an aircraft, uh, the Republic XF-84H, dubbed the Thunder Screech, was a, a an experimental turboprop aircraft. And uh, the propeller moved so fast, it caused such a vibration that it actually was detrimental to ground crews. And, and reading from the, the wiki entry here, uh, it was also called the Mighty Ear Banger. On the ground run-ups, the prototypes could reportedly be heard 25 miles away. Wow. Now, I'm, I'm making this comparison because people might speculate that it was because of the military there, now that's the army though, that maybe there was some military connection to all this, okay? Now back to the wiki article on the uh, XF-84. Uh, unlike standard propellers that turn at subsonic speeds, the outer 24 to 30 inches of the blades of the XF-84H's propellers traveled faster than the speed of sound, even at idle thrust, producing a continuous visible sonic boom that radiated laterally from the propellers for hundreds of yards. Wow. The shockwave was actually powerful enough to knock a man down. How did that not tear the airplane up? You would think well, it they would affect it the plane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd think, but uh, yeah, these guys are smart, but that's like, it, it, it went beyond the capacity or the practicality of the plane itself. It must have been horrible to, to feel, but uh, this is interesting. Next part of a sentence here. An unfortunate crew chief who was inside a nearby C-47 was severely incapacitated during a 30-minute ground run. So vibration, uh, yeah, can really affect you here. So it's coupled with the already considerable noise from the subsonic aspect of the propeller at the T-40's dual turbine sections. The aircraft was notorious for inducing severe nausea and headaches among ground crews. In one report, a Republic engineer suffered a seizure after close-range exposure to the shockwaves emanating from a powered-up XF-84H. I want to point that out, too, is that, uh, yes, humans can make things that can cause that kind of effect on a human being from a distance, but essentially with, uh, with sound waves. Yeah, I got real curious about what this aircraft sounded like just now while you were talking mm -hmm. about it, and I did manage mm -hmm. to find it on YouTube, so... <laughs> We're going to play some audio of this aircraft, the XF-84H Thunder Screech. We just want to warn everyone right now, even with your volume down, this might be a little crazy. So this is your warning. If you're driving a car or riding your bike or working out or whatever, just get ready. We're going to play, you know, maybe 10 seconds or so of what this aircraft sounds like. This is not your car about to explode, by the way. Yeah. Okay, that is honestly one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. I can't wait for our sound designer uh, yeah. to hear that because it's like if you went to him and you said, could you make something like this? It's like, that is crazy. <laughs> yes, very smart and demented minds had to build that. But no, it's an amazing piece of uh, machinery. But like I said, it, it surpassed its, let's say, practical purposes in that uh, even the pilots, I think, were irritated by the sounds that were coming from it. How could you fly that thing? I mean, you know, it's right. like... I, but it's also uh, uh, World War II German Stuka pilots. They had a, a siren that some would yes. attach to the legs. If you ever see World War II movies or you're, you're interested in uh, World War II aircraft, you'll see that the dive bombers have the long landing gear struts. 
and it was never used much. I, I read up a little bit about this, but there was a, a siren uh, that was attached to it. And if you've ever watched a movie, and actually even some modern ones where a plane is diving or falling at a steep angle, that is the sound of the Stuka dive bombing. But the pilots would say they, they didn't like doing that, even though it was meant to inspire fear and terror in the targets down below. But it irritated them as well. Yeah. But that's such an iconic sound now. We've heard that so many times in our TV and movies that uh, we just think that's every plane diving now. Well, and the other thing that this story confirms for me that I've thought about many times and never bothered to really look up, it's basic, I guess, physics or whatever, is that the outside of a circle spins faster than the inside. Uh, so <laughs> you're, yes. like when you play a record, the outside yeah. of the record is spinning faster than the inside of the record. <laughs> Same thing with your yeah. car. The tire is going faster than the wheel. Well, anyway, this thing wasn't over. The thing wasn't over. As UFOcasebook.com says, quote, in one year, more than 1,000 sightings of unidentified flying objects were recorded, and they continued to be seen on a regular basis between 1965 and 1977, end quote. So now we'll take a look at some of the figures, though, that were important here or instrumental in the, um, in the flap of weirdness. One is David Holton. Going back now a little bit, uh, pre-1977, of course, 1965, February of 1965, a scientist from the nearby town of Crockerton named David Holton claimed that the bizarre sonic phenomena was years in the making. Holton wrote to the local paper, the Warminster Journal, that not only had the sound been frightening children in the area, but that it caused the death of a flock of pigeons on one occasion. Now, I believe this passage here is from the journal article about David Holton's letter, which he sent into the paper, and it also a description from accounts of other eyewitnesses. And of course, we got that from the website I mentioned before, ufo-warminster.co.uk, and that's the timeline section. So that's a good reference of seeing how these uh, timeline events fold out, because it's like with people and skinwalkers, like, this is just a mishmash of weird stuff happening. It's like, yep, that's... <laughs> That's what, what it that is. is. <laughs> That's what it is. Well, listen to this, uh, is what uh, the paper describes as David Holton's account. A flock of pigeons was killed in flight when tangling with the thing. They brushed into fatal contact with paralyzing sound beams in woods in Crockerton, near Warminster. Stiff-winged, they plummeted earthward. The thing, in its most stunning guise, was directly responsible. A number of people testified to a high-pitched droning. So they heard this, and they saw the effects of it, and then it knocked birds out of the sky. Now, I don't know if it was actually a bean that was visible, but certainly uh, they crossed into a path of something that just killed them dead in the sky, and they fell right to the ground, uh, as witnessed by a bunch of people. Well, Holton was interviewed by local TV news, and he came out saying that he believed the thing was, of course, from outer space. And it was only going to be a matter of time before everyone found out where the source of this noise was coming from. So throughout the spring here, more people were coming forward with reports of this, this weird droning, metallic-like sounds, things that were just puzzling and enigmatic happening on their rooftops, uh, their windows shaking. Pets were also described as suffering from these weird sonic attacks. And in some cases, the pets got violently ill. So here you have smaller animals also being affected. And of course, we know that animals, with their hearing, they are much more sensitive. So uh, it's, yeah, I imagine it was horrible for them. 
But into the year of 1965, into late spring and summer, just reports were just now coming out of the walls because people now in Warminster are not just hearing weird stuff. They're starting to see it. One account from March 25th of 1965. This is an early morning account. Ted and Gwen Davis of Crockerton reported, quote, the flapping of myriad birds' wings rushing over the rooftop, crackling round the chimney. Then came the grinding, metallic undertone of the thing in closer contact. Our rafters shook and our windows rattled. We thought all the birds in these parts were migrating. At 11 p.m. on March 28th, Eric Payne near Bishopstrow, quote, heard a whistling noise that developed into a loud buzzing. It flattened treetops on either side of me, making a tremendous racket overhead. It sent shivers up my spine. And also by late spring, as David Holton was telling the public, a possible source for these sounds did start to make an appearance to the masses by way of strange objects being seen in the sky. On May 19th of 1965, Hilda Hebdige of Warminster, it was reported, quote, on three separate occasions during that week, she saw unusual objects in the sky. She first related these to Barry Woodgate of the Fleet Street UFO group. The objects were cigar-shaped and covered with bright lights, which winked and blinked. They were various shades of gold and yellow. Two of the objects appeared to be over Longleat, the other over Hatesbury. So now reading from the timeline here, these things increase in frequency and weirdness. Three other notable sightings occurred, it seems, on June 3rd, 1965, all at around 8.30 p.m. Patricia Phillips and family in Hatesbury, quote, The cigar-shaped glow hung, a brilliant spectacle in the sky for a good 25 minutes or more. She thought it did not change position at all. There was a distinct dark circular patch or aperture at the base of the fiery object, which threw off a halo of red-orange light. The craft was horizontal, not vertical, she insisted. Harold and Dora Horlock of Warminster. Mrs. Horlock saw twin red-hot pokers hanging downwards, one on top of the other, with a black space in between. At the angle of vision of the couple, this was obviously the same object as seen by Mrs. Phillips. Or were there two? One closely positioned behind the first. Seventeen people at Shearwater, south of Warminster. Seventeen people were either fishing or bathing at Shearwater, Crockerton. All witnessed the cigar-bodied extravaganza. It was obviously huge, but high up, said Colin Hampton. So surprised, he fell into the lake. Some thought it could be orange mauve, others orange red. But apart from these slight color variations, the main descriptions agreed with Mrs. Phillips. At 8.35 p.m. on June 19th, Catherine Penton of Warminster. Fantastic spectacle. Shining thing going sideways. Porthole-type windows. To my eyes, it was the size of a bedroom wall. Windows were lit up. Dora Horlock, again, 3.15 a.m. on July 7th, 1965. A large red ball in the south which rose into the sky and hung down, opening up once more into a flaming poker. It had a black base at its rim. It was the size of our front room to my eyes. It was so close. A sizzling or crackling sound not unlike eggs and bacon frying in a pan could be heard. Wow, so this thing's making a lot of interesting noises. Also, these people it's are the... <laughs> seeing it almost a month apart. Yeah, similar things happening, uh, you know, days, months apart, sometimes on the same day. So it's kind of confirmed, unless they're all in cahoots. 
and, it, and they're very similar, but not all seeing exactly the same thing, but roughly. This is why it's such a mystery and uh, such a chore, I'm sure, for Ryan, our sound designer, because I was like, <laughs> we better give these uh, descriptions to him early on because it's such a mishmash of weird uh, sounds coinciding, don't you think? Yeah, and at this point, I mean, I'm betting on him. He always does amazing stuff, but at this point, as we're recording it, we have no idea what he's going to come up with. But um, <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, and it's interesting, the the uh, repeated descriptions of a poker, you know, I'm trying to think of like... Yeah you know, when we start out with the mundane and what could this possibly be? I'm trying to think mm -hmm. of some new technology that maybe eventually evolved that these people just right. haven't seen before. So they're taken aback by it, but I can't even think of what would compare to these descriptions. Right. We're going to get to that idea. Of course, keep in mind, this is 1965. So right. people are thinking that, and there are good reasons for that because of the location of Warminster. But get this, so as the year progresses, by August, well, perhaps as David Holton predicted, residents of Warminster were not only hearing but seeing a connection between these bewildering sonic intrusions and strange objects in the skies overhead. Around 3.45 a.m. on August 10th of 1965, Rachel Atwill was awoken by the violent shaking of the floor of her house, which was accompanied by a loud, piercing droning noise. She looks out her bedroom window to see what was the matter, a little twice night before Christmas aunt nod there. Yes. Well, she looked out her bedroom window and described it thusly. Well, actually, this is the description of her describing it, and it's kind of funny. It's the 1965, so it says, the attractive wife of a Royal Air Force pilot was woken by a terrible droning sound. It made the bed and floor shake. And this is now her speaking. I went over to the bedroom window and looked out. About 200 yards above the range of hills was a bright object like a massive star, domed on top, and huge in size, an unwinking light of uncanny brilliance. The object and the sound were present for about a half an hour before the craft disappeared and the, and the sounds had subsided. And Rachel wasn't really disturbed at the sight of the craft, but she mentioned the sound was chilling. That's another thing that keeps coming up, is that the sound is not just weird, metal clanging, it's disturbing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it makes people really uneasy. Well, of course, and, and it makes pets sick. And also the idea of portals, you know, it's, it's such a like, a, I, I love these UFOs that essentially are <laughs> just flying submarines, I guess, because they have portal windows. The stories that freak me out the most, and of course, I was waiting for one of all the anecdotes that I've heard. It's the windows where you can see figures humanoid or, you know, with head shape with shoulders. Yeah. And I believe uh, one of my favorite uh, stories this might have been the aerial school kids, uh, but oh, yeah. they see the guys and they wave at them. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Yeah, like, that's hey, very nice. Hey, hey, how's it going? We'll be back to pick you up at 2 a.m. <laughs> Just hold tight. <laughs> but Go to you sleep. won't remember it. This is Sean, and for the first time ever, I've finished the archive and have been anxiously waiting for each new episode of Astonishing Legends. Now let's hurry up and get back to the show. Well, Scott, let me tell you this uh, next account, and then you tell me if it sounds like anything we've covered before here. So this happens to, uh, let's see, it's another notable account from the same morning of August 10th, 1965, at 4.36 a.m., and this happened to Terry Pell of Warminster. Mr. Pell was driving his lorry from Spalding to his destination That's in That's a Warminster. truck for Americans. Lorry. <laughs> I know that. It's a truck. Okay. Very good. Yes. Yeah. No, Just want to help people out yeah. when I can. Okay. No. Not a, not a woman named Lori, okay? Uh, with him in the camp were his wife and daughter who were asleep. He was just passing Callaway Club. 
Without any warning, a ball of crimson light flew from the hillside on his left, that is, somewhere around Callaway Clump. The light hovered 50 yards in front of him and then sped head-on towards his lorry. Quote, its speed and change of direction were almost unbelievable, Mr. Pell said, and he braked sharply to avoid the UFO, but the UFO itself stopped just in front of the lorry and then proceeded to move backwards at the same speed as the lorry. Whoa. Yeah, which was still doing 30 miles per hour. Shuttlewood writes, superb control must have been exercised over its motivation mechanism in those few seconds before the fruit carrier ground to a halt. Mr. Pell's lorry ended up by the wire fencing on the off side of the road. His last sight of the UFO was over the clump where it hovered for a few seconds before vanishing. So that sounds to me like one, uh, Lonnie Zamora a little bit. Yeah. And, and maybe a little bit, I guess, uh, like, uh, uh, Woody Derenberger, where you know this craft is kind of matching its speed, like it's it's easy for them to do that. They just punch yes. that in, boom, match that speed. Again, with the inside baseball thing, Lonnie Zamora's famous case. It took place in uh, the Southwest in the U.S. and New mm-hmm. Mexico, and Woody Derenberger is from the Mothman series. Yes. And what's interesting here, though, again, it's a phrase I haven't been able to use in a while, is that this thing is exhibiting non-ballistic motion. Yeah, it's very non-ballistic, and it's defying the laws <laughs> like of physics. But the other thing that's interested is lots of people are describing similar things in different locations. Right. And that would seem to corroborate everything. There's a lot of people reporting this, and it's so weird. It's, uh, of course, they could make it all up. People have good imaginations, depending on who it is and their personality. It's just so bizarre. It just seems like it's like a weird thing to include these details. And again, doesn't prove anything, but it is an interesting note. The other thing here with the patterns... Some are accompanied by a weird sound. Some are not. Some are just visual. Some have the sound and no visuals. And so that's what I'm trying to uh, gauge here is that Christmas Day was all just sound, really, as far as I know. Then it started to be sounds plus sightings, and then sometimes just sightings. It just gets weirder after that. So these sounds aren't just like, what is that off in the distance? Is that a train whistle? That's what you heard. It's so loud and powerful, it seems like it would cause massive damage. But it doesn't. That's the other weird thing. So listen to this account here. The sound of some kind of explosion or blast had greatly shaken the Borum Field housing estate on August 17th of that year. Some residents, like Mr. and Mrs. Walter Curtis, thought that the gas main across the street had exploded by how violent the shaking was under their feet. And despite the thunderous rumble, there wasn't any visible damage other than some broken windows in the neighborhood. And David Pinnell had also heard the noise and ran outside to see what was causing it and found that the hills were lit up by a fiery orange glow in the shape of a massive light bulb. This glow then turned into what looked like the core of a, or like a core of yellow light encased in a giant ball of smoke. As the light started to fade, you know what I'm saying here, is that as it's fading, he's getting an idea of the shape inside. It looks like it has a giant core of yellow light inside, Mm -hmm. inside this ball of smoke. And then this core then came down from the hills and glided over the landscape, all while making a crackling and a hissing sound. Another witness to the massive glowing smoke ball said it finally came to rest on the road and dissipated when it seemed to burn itself out. Are there ever any smells associated with this? That is a great question. I didn't recall anything. You didn't come across uh, anything because you would think the crackling or whatever, you almost think there would be a, like an ozone situation going on or something like that. There's an incident late, much later on we're going to get to where people describe, well, I actually described it like that. They described it as 
the air was seemed filled with electricity. Yeah. yeah. So maybe there was a sound, but yeah, I'm, I'm always fascinated by sounds, tastes, and smells associated with weirdness. And you know who would really love this is Joshua Cutchin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, about like, okay, what, what did you all smell there? Was there any foods left around? Space pancakes, anything like that. Because it is part of the experience as well. Uh, but that's very clever of you to think to ask that. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, Yes, well, oh, I mean, I'm like try, uh... <laughs> trying to serve some sort of purpose here. <laughs> I see, I see. No, I'm I'm blasting through this so we we don't have another four hour episode. Uh, no, no, I'm, I think I think everyone will appreciate that, and I'm... we will discuss the questions afterward. We're just yes. kind of seeing uh, how far we get with this. Uh, but uh, there's so many interesting little tidbits here. I want to I want to lay them all out to you, slap you in the head with it, and then uh, let's just see. Where and then it we'll lands. be on our way. Yeah. We'll be on our way. <laughs> so the incidents weren't on their way, really, because as you can imagine by now, the townspeople, along with the authorities, were growing a little concerned for their safety and also wondering how to deal with all the national and worldwide publicity that was flooding the town with UFO tourism. Now, the citizens also wanted to know if there was a connection, there you go, Scott, to all the military bases and operations the area was known for. Because I, I believe... Uh, was it San Antonio is known as uh, America's military town? Mm -hmm. Warminster and actually I think the Wiltshire County is known as a military town, military county. So a lot of activity is going on there. But just, you know, training. It's not Groom Lake. It's not Area 51. Right. It's just regular army training. So Yeah, and just quickly before you move on, there are a lot of times, this is another one of those paranormal chicken-the-egg situations. People are like, right. oh, well, it's the base. And it's like, ah, yeah, right. but sometimes the bases draw the events. It's Absolutely. not necessarily some secret civilian project, although that does happen for sure. Right, right. But other times it almost seems like when we get these visitors, if you believe any of this at all, that they're drawn to military installations. Very well could be. They're, yeah. they're de definitely, because I don't, you know, from describing what it sounds like, it's not, uh, you know, this is a residential area. There's better places, and certainly there are, I believe in the north of England, weird uh, sonic experimentation stuff along the coast. Stuff that our friend Paul Sinclair uh, has reported on and ends up in his books. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to talk with him one day yes. about all the fascinating stuff there and, and just really weird. Uh, of course, every country is doing it. But in this case, listen, around the Salisbury Plain were six airfields, the Army School of Infantry training camps and, and weapons testing sites. So possibly there's explosions around there, but they should be all familiar with that. It's not like they just started it that week and then people are freaked out like, oh my God, you, you started training Christmas Day, what's going on? They should be used to it. But now this is so out of the ordinary. Council Chairman Merlin Reese scheduled a public meeting on the Friday evening before the August bank holiday weekend in 1965 in order to go over the collective reports, hear from authorities, and to allay the fears of the residents. Okay, now here's an article that's a clipping from, I believe, the Warminster Journal, dated 21st of August, 1965, with the title of File on the Thing Stays a Secret. And the article goes a little something like this. Mr. David Holton, a scientist, yesterday threatened to destroy a dossier on the thing at Warminster rather than disclose its contents to a public meeting next Friday at the town hall. For several years, Mr. Holton, who is a consultant in medical jurisprudence, has investigated aerial phenomena in the West Country. He's also spent months checking on reports of weird noises and strange objects in the night sky over southern area of Warminster. 
but he refuses to recognize the meeting called by Warminster Urban Council Chairman Mr. Emelyn Reese to discuss the phenomena. Mr. Horton, who lives at Sudden End, Crockerton, near Warminster, says that other places have had similar manifestations. He claims that French atom scientist Pierre Michel is investigating four cases in France at the moment. This meeting is not the right way to go about it, he said. This is a serious matter and must not be thrashed out in a half-hearted way by local people in front of newspaper men and television cameras. If I gave evidence at this meeting, which is not official, I would have to reveal the names of witnesses and people who have helped me, and I just cannot betray these confidences. And then the article goes on to say, pigeons killed. Many local people, especially children, have grown anxious about the thing ever since the first reports just after Christmas morning of 1964. They claim to have heard a tremendous cracking in the sky, which killed pigeons in flight, peppered dormice with holes, and stuns animals, partridges, and pheasants. Some people say they have been knocked down by a strange force. Mr. Holton, who was a spare-time geologist, naturalist, and archaeologist, claimed weeks ago that the happenings indicated that people in Warminster would soon be seeing objects in the sky. Shortly afterwards, the vicar of Hatesbury, the Reverend Graham Phillip, and his family reported seeing a glowing cigar-shaped object over the south of the town from the vicarage in the village. It remained motionless for over 20 minutes. Their 12-year-old son, Nigel, had a close-up view of the thing with his telescope and drew a picture of it. Hmm. So another thing to note here, it's not just the town drunk seeing all these miraculous things. These are important people in town. The vicar, the postmaster, military people. So what you're getting here is, you know, researchers like to call more qualified people reporting people with something on the line so they're not just spouting stuff that could uh, ruin their reputations. They're standing by these accounts. I'd like again to thank Mirage Man for his article posted on AboveTopSecret.com for providing the bulk of the talking points and story structure for this topic and for calling the statements together like these uh, from the meeting attendees. Dr. E.R. Doel of the National UFO Association, or NUFOA, said, quote, We are struggling to explain these phenomena. We defy skeptics to find any explanation that will satisfy people that these things are not from outer space. You should not be afraid. You are privileged to investigate them. End quote. And of course, a representative from the local Bufora chapter, the British UFO Research Association, Dr. John Cleary Baker. Bufora, yes. by the way, that's the journal that our Sandown Clown uh, Exactly, right. There's a few of these types of organizations like, like there are now, but they showed up to this meeting. I mean, it became well known. And the rep from Bufora, Dr. John Cleary Baker, stated that there was no apparent danger from this thing and, and that the cause was not mass hallucinations or hoaxes. But a Mr. Inge, I-N-G-E, or Ing, who attended the meeting and worked at an observation post for government research centers uh, about 12 miles away from the town, he was of the opinion that the majority of the sightings were satellites or rockets burning up, military operations, or common celestial events. And he thought the sounds people were hearing were just noise from helicopters overhead. He did admit, though, that 25% of the reports were unexplainable. 25% is a pretty high percentage uh, compared to like <laughs> pretty... Project Blue Book or whatever. That's, that's I'm surprised a guy that just said, uh, again, they always go back to like, no one's heard a helicopter before. So they're, you know, 
Yeah, yeah. These are like cave people. Like, oh my gosh, what's that big metal bird in the sky? Yeah. It's just, it's like they've, they've heard helicopters. It's an army training area. Of course they've heard them. This is something different. Yeah. It's the Goodyear blimp explanation for the UFO seen off the highway in uh, in Georgia. That it was the blimp. They tracked the blimp. No, it was no, a blimp no, over wasn't. a game. Yes, it was. There was a football game right there. That's a bad example. No, I'll debate you on that. See, See this, this thing that just this, happened two months uh, ago? Not too long ago, yeah. Yes, yeah. That, it was a blimp. It was a blimp. See, now this is good fodder for our YouTube show where we do nothing but argue about stupid stuff like this. <laughs> well, that's exactly, uh, <laughs> everyone is, I know you're waiting for that one. You guys cannot wait. My case in point with that is that uh, I'm sure that blimp has been there before for games and many residents who drive that highway all the time have seen that before. And maybe that is something with group psychology. Suddenly that day, suddenly now a group of people are like, oh my gosh, what is that thing? It's it's flashed. There's, there's a picture of Snoopy on the side. What are they saying to us? It's like, well, that's a Goodyear blimp. Yeah. But suddenly now it's weird and it's a UFO. That's what I would want to talk to you about, about that case later on. But getting back to this scenario here, look, doesn't this scenario seem very much like it came from a 1950s sci-fi movie where you have the town's authorities, you got a scientist, a religious leader, a military general, and they're all debating on the DS with, with the townsfolk yelling questions from the audience. It's a great scene. <laughs> I can see it I've seen Bigfoot one time. <laughs> Made a noise you wouldn't want to hear twice in your life. <laughs> so that's the idea. There was press there and it was packed, of course, as you can imagine, this town hall. And they were genuinely concerned. They don't know what's going on. But anyway, it just, yeah, it just seems like that scene in every sci-fi movie. Like, what's happening? You let us know. Like, we demand <laughs> to know. And then, of course, uh, people say, don't worry. You're just hearing helicopters. Yeah. And a bunch of meteors, like, every day. Right. <laughs> like, and ones that are landing on uh, things on your house with no evidence. Yes, and keeping pace with your lorry backwards. Nothing to worry about here. Well, uh, of course, uh, yeah, scientist David Holton chose not to attend. But guess who, curiously, were also absent? Any representatives from either the British Army or the Royal Air Force, even though they were invited to attend and allay fears. Hmm. Had nothing to say. Nothing to say about this. That's a little fishy. At least you would think they would show up and, like our military does and say, it's all weather balloons. Right. Well, let's get to one of the main characters of this whole flap here. Uh, he's become, uh, I think, probably the main central person associated with this whole event over the years that kind of took over his life. Now, this comes from Kevin Goodman's article titled The Mystery of Warminster's UFO by Kevin Goodman, listed as a UFO expert on the BBC website. As Goodman says, the one main journalist covering the incidents for the area was Arthur Shuttlewood, who at the time was the features editor for the local weekly newspaper, the Warminster Journal, which we've now mentioned a bunch. Arthur Shuttlewood would go on to write a book about the wave called The Warminster Mystery. He wrote several books, actually. But in his book, and talking about the sounds in general, Marjorie Bai's experience, specifically it seems here, he described the phenomena thusly. The air was brazenly filled with a menacing sound. Sudden vibrations came overhead, chilling in intensity. They tore the quiet atmosphere to raucous rags and descended upon her savagely. Shockwaves pounded at her head, neck, and shoulders. That's a case, though, where uh, Marjorie Bai felt attacked by it. Maybe, perhaps, like the sonic attacks reported out of Cuba at the embassy. I mean, they, generally people just felt gradually ill or, or suddenly ill, but this was like she was being beaten up. Uh, yeah. as she described it, and, and threw her to the ground. So obviously some people are more sensitive to this kind of stuff than others. But this stuff is invasive. It's not just uh, 
not just helicopters, okay? So as Kevin Goodman describes, it only took a couple of weeks for the floodgates on all the incident reports from townspeople to come in and for them to start referring to it all as the thing, as I told you earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so they didn't know what to make of this. You just call it, it's the thing. It's the thing that's happening. It includes the noise, the sights, the weirdness. It's just the thing. So it's a term for a collective group of phenomena. Well, Goodman claims that the townsfolk had never heard of UFOs or flying saucers at the time in 1965 just not that familiar with them. Hmm. But suddenly now it's a big deal there. Well, this is what's interesting in in the career of Shuttlewood here, because he seems skeptical or agnostic at first about the phenomena in that old-fashioned objective journalist stance until he reported seeing a UFO from his home in September of 1965. And that kind of changed his mind. But before that, he had collected quite a number of accounts for his files. But after his own sighting, He became a believer, and as Goodman describes, uh, soon became the voice and champion of the Warminster mystery. You could say he he became kind of Warminster's own John Keel, uh, although those that have studied the event say Arthur Shuttlewood became so entangled in the phenomenon that he wasn't being logical about it anymore. Uh, He suspected it was military weapons testing at first, like a lot of logical people would. Mm -hmm. Remember, he's a journalist starting out here, so he's trying to be objective and logical, and rational, uh, but none of the military representatives that he interviewed admitted involvement. So that was a dead end. Maybe there's something covering up, but there, it was getting nowhere. But why wouldn't you just admit that, if it, unless it was something top secret, of course? Right. Celestial causes like meteors and bolides seemed highly unlikely by all the evidence. And, and so the quest for getting at the real cause of the thing defined the rest of his life. It took over his life. Yeah. It, this keeps happening to people. Which, by the way, if you go back and you look at some of the stuff we covered at the end of the Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, you do start to wonder about this overlap because it's almost like the goal of every single thing that's happening, whether it's a UFO or a ghost or whatever else, it's like if it can single out this one person and take over their whole lives, it becomes something. And that's something that I think Keel was good at fighting. But I think other people, maybe they get sucked in and they can't come back. You know? Yeah, you're right. It's interesting to think about it. Like with Keel, was he gradually eased into it so he knew what was coming? On the other hand, when you're thrust into it, especially with a tragedy, like the fictional character John Klein in the Mothman Prophecies that Rich so deftly wrote, is that he, he has, he's on the precipice. He could get sucked in. Mm-hmm. There's always that one more weird thing to follow up, that phone call that he waits for. And, and of course, Uh, His character has to decide, is that the life I want to lead, or do I want to go just have a nice Christmas dinner Mm -hmm. with a very nice lady and her family? And it's also a Christmas movie. Yeah, you're right. Rich, I think Rich pointed that out to me, and I hadn't really thought about it until he said it last time he was on. (laughs) It is. Right. It it does have a vibe there, but uh, it wasn't really kind of until the end. And of course, it it is based on a real-life tragedy. So It was only three years after this, or two, excuse me, two years after this. You're right. Almost to the day. If you yeah. go by Mildred Head's experience, and then you look at uh, the Silver Bridge collapse, would be two years later in uh, Point Pleasant. You do wonder if uh, things around the globe are somehow connected, because to me, in my thinking, there's no problem with time or space for some of this stuff. Although time and space is a factor, those things under certain conditions could be overcome. Well, getting back, though, to the mysterious sonic attacks, you know, even though they were never sourced officially, and it could be claimed that the sounds and the objects in the skies were merely coincidental, 
There is one image of the flying saucer component of the flap that became an icon for the series of events. Town resident Gordon Faulkner took a photo of a UFO in 1965 and gave the picture to Shuttlewood to do as he seemed fit with it. Now, of course, it's your classic grainy black and white photograph with a typical flying saucer UFO shape, like uh, two saucers or, or not, I wouldn't say pie pans, but like two saucers or bowls glued together edge to edge with a raised polygon type shape on the top, much like those old fashioned uh, metal children's spinning toy tops. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. But here is Gordon Faulkner, uh, in his own words, describing taking the photo. And this uh, is clocked in at August 29th, 1965, sometime in the evening when this happened. He shut the door behind him and was suddenly aware of the thing. As it flew fast and low over the south of the town, I could just make out the unusual shape. It made no noise. Hurriedly, I got my camera free and pointed it at the craft, but the line of flight was too fast to follow. So I held the camera well in front of it and pressed the trigger as it entered the viewfinder. I did not dream I would get anything on film at all, and I was amazed when I saw what came out. Now, Faulkner sent the picture to the editor of the Warminster Journal. So that's a good trick. I, I, was, uh, I was proud of old Gordon for thinking of, uh, you know, it's like leading a shot uh, yeah. with a rifle. where You lead it because he knew that uh, it was just going to be a blur. I think it's a pretty good photo. I mean, you can't obviously... It, well, it's blown up. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, if you were to make a prop and, you know, at this with the kind of grain it has in it, you could... You, you can't say for sure that it's real or whatever, but the, I mean, right. as far as these kind of photos go, it's a pretty good picture. It's a pretty good one, I'll give you that. Yeah. Well, Arthur Shuttlewood then gave that uh, film to the Daily Mirror newspaper after Gordon gave him the, uh, the shot and said, do what you will with it. Uh, he gives it to the Daily Mirror newspaper, who published it on the 10th of September, 1965. After that, Warminster started to gain worldwide attention and publicity, and in the weeks that followed, thousands came to Warminster to try and witness the phenomena for themselves. And, of course, sometime in the early 1990s, a man named Roger Hooten claimed that he and Gordon Faulkner had hoaxed the photo using a cotton reel, a button, and a milk bottle top. And, but Faulkner claims he never met anyone named Roger Hooten and insists the photo isn't faked. And, fake or not, to this day, the photo has never been debunked. Okay. So, not been proven one way or the other. So, of course, you got a, a, a blurry photo... And then, of course, you're going to get strange characters coming out of the woodwork here. Because now the strange characters start showing up. Arthur Shuttlewood gets a phone call on the afternoon of September 26, 1965, from someone claiming to be from the planet Aenstria and calling himself Carne. Asana. No, I'm joking. It's But it is K-A-R-N-E. So is it Karn with a silent E or is it Carne? That's a good question. Delicious either way. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase this from uh, uh, Mirage Man's article here. But so, yeah, I mean, it, it seems kind of ridiculous here by the description. But Arthur Shuttlewood gets this call. So he says, well, yeah, you're going to have to show me some kind of proof before I believe what you got to say. Uh, so I need to talk with you in person. And again, remember, he's a journalist. He's talked to dubious people before, I'm sure. But he said shortly after that call, uh, almost immediately, a visitor appears at his front door. Now, keep that in mind, too. At least the way that uh, Mirage Man wrote it. He said he claimed that in almost no time at all, a visitor appeared at his front door. Gets a phone call, hangs up. You got to show up. Boom, he's there. And this is before cell phones, people. Way before <laughs> cell phones. <laughs> that, is, that is true. But I want you to see some elements of the story here where you could see where 
critics would say, no, it didn't happen. And you might wonder, right. Is that right? If you do believe this stuff happens, the visitor had no pupils, no visible pupils in his eyes and bluish blotches on his cheeks and lips. I'm not sure what no visible pupils means. Is, is it all just just solid blue? I'm not saying it's a black-eyed individual, mm-hmm. but it could be a contact, you know what I'm saying, that just covers over the pupils, so there's no black pupil there. Yeah. Not sure what's going on. It, he had weird eyes, and if it was a guy faking it, he at least had to spring for contacts. That's, yeah. that's what I'll say. Carnet's message was, it's the usual stuff, as, as Mirage Man says here, unimaginative, predictable alien mantra stuff. He, he warned of inevitable third world war, environmental damage, the lack of human spirituality and morality, coming war in the Middle East. And as Mirage Man says, like, yeah, when it hasn't been that the case. Yeah. So you're not making big claims, predictive claims here. It's just kind of stuff we already know. But it is that common thread of, I tend to trust those kids from the aerial school, and that's what they said. You know, that's a very common thing. It's like, you got to take care of your planet. Mm-hmm. Don't make a step in because we're, we're going to spank you. It's about time for someone to step in, I think. But yes. <laughs> that's what, well, like yourself, he's dubious, but the calls get traced to a call box in Borum Field, Warminster, not far from an army barracks. Was it some soldier playing a trick on him? Was it in cahoots? I mean, did, this is the thing. Well, it could be PSYOP, right? Or like, you know, something, a disinformation campaign. You know, let's make somebody in town crazy so we can continue to cover up what really happened, which Possibly. May, may or may not have been terrestrial. Maybe because it does, you get these incidents where maybe the military is trying to cover up right. highly experimental technology. And in other cases, are they more trying to cover up something that can't be explained. Yeah, you can go back and forth. It doesn't make any sense. This is not like a typical man in black visitation where he tells him, like, you've got to stop looking into this. Yeah. May I use your telegraph? Is it food time? Yeah. <laughs> May I have which sand? Oh, sandwich. Excuse me. I don't know. So this is what I'm saying. Is like This is a weird character. But the visit lasted only about 10 minutes. Arthur Shuttlewood, he thought this thing was a hoax. This is kind of weird. But he did admit that, like, it was pretty unnerving even if it was a, a goofball hoax. And he started worrying for his life. It's like, am I tangled up in something weird here where now it's just going to be constant weirdos? Uh, is my life in danger? Yeah, so it had an effect on him. Well, after that, a number of Aenstrians continued to call Shuttlewood repeatedly until the end of October. Same kind of story there. Dooms for the human race, all the same messages. And he was still suspecting that all the calls were hoaxes at this time. But like you just said, uh, he just said, okay, they're possibly hoaxes, but yeah, those messages make sense. Yeah, we should watch out for war, not have any, and take care of the planet and uh, all that good stuff. So, you know, it's, what do you say with that information? Like, okay, thank you. Yes, you're right. Well, again, though, uh, it's, it's a little like John Keel. Shuttlewood is getting weird calls and visits. Although I would say with Keel, they're much more dramatic, and uh, he's got more of a handle on this type of phenomena anyway. So his were much stranger, but these are, I can see weird people. I don't want anybody showing up at my house. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Especially with no pupils and misapplied makeup. Well, you I don't just, even like it when I stop by and, and it's usually to pick you up never lunch have. or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I visit. <laughs> that's fine. I'll meet you outside. No, what I'm saying is like, yeah, it's just, I, especially not somebody that you don't know, but it's something that you're studying something. I mean, I, you know, no, thank you. But now, 
Shuttlewood is getting embroiled in this thing, okay? So it's taken over his life a little bit here. And the sightings continue. Other sightings of strange individuals continue on through the end of the year. A retired RAF group captain and his wife were driving home to Warminster about 1.30 in the morning in November of 1965 when they had to break suddenly because a human figure wearing all black clothing with a black balaclava and black mask with just its nose visible appeared in the middle of the road and was lit up by their headlights. On the opposite side of the road from this figure was what looked to them like a young man, completely naked except for a jacket, and staggering over a hedge. They thought the young man may have been in, in an accident or was assaulted, so they stopped the car to help, but then both figures had vanished. Wow. That's weird and disturbing yeah. Yeah, to see both of that, because I would immediately be like, did that guy beat him up? Like, What's going on here? And then yeah. they're both gone. Right. And you would think if that was not paranormal, then later you would find out that a crime had been committed. There would be a body. There would be an assault reported. There would right, be something right. going on. And if none of that ever happens, it makes the sighting even more weird. It does. And yeah, it's a smaller town. People should know each other. You know, you would think it would come forward. The other thing to note, this is also a more credible witness in that he's an RAF group captain. Right. He's a higher ranking military man. Again, a much more credible witness to a lot of uh, people. So these sightings are happening to people from all walks of life here. Uh, but again, another figure jumped out in front of a motorist, this time just before 8 p.m. on December 16, 1965. Reginald Roberts described the strange character as wearing gray clothing and having, get this, streaming fair hair. Robert gets out to look, but the figure has also vanished. Was it the disco wizard, I, I asked I was you. just going to say, the disco <laughs> yeah. wizard. His clothes doesn't seem that, that fashionable, though. They're yeah. all just kind of gray. Or um, maybe it was Valiant Thor. <laughs> Talk about an obscure reference. Uh, yeah. He's a, yeah, an alien that was in, like in a photo of a group of military. Like, ah, that's right. Tall, yes. blonde. Yeah, One that's of the Nordic uh, Space Brothers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it's fun. Um, yeah. yeah, the long flowing hair. Yes, it's 1965, but um, he vanishes. So yeah. that's not anything a 60s hippie might be able to do. And so, Scott, uh, we can't be done with just weirdos disappearing in the middle of the road, right? We have to involve cattle. There's always got to be cattle, yeah. It's more interesting if it is. I don't want them to get hurt, though. No. And in this case, I, I don't think they did. Huh. Uh, so we have a story involving cattle. A herd of cows in the village of Chiturn, C-H-I-T-T-E-R-N-E, Chiturn or Chiturn, at the middle of the Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire County, about seven miles east of Warminster, uh, disappeared one morning in the late summer of 1967. Now, the farmer and his workers searched the pastures and the milking barns, but all the cows had vanished. And over 24 hours later, they all mysteriously showed up. The next morning, in the field, all herded together as if nothing had happened, all totally unharmed. Hmm. They just disappeared for a while. Wow. They also could have been removed and replaced with identical cows. Maybe, <laughs> maybe identical alien cows. Again, man, that's a long ways to go for a gag. Yeah, you know? that's true. Okay. The bizarre events would diminish in frequency in the decades following, but often not in bizarreness. 
sightings and experiences happen, but it, it seemed from the early 1970s on, the reports started to diminish. Now, Kevin Goodman believes that Warminster by that time had become old news, and, and since the national publicity had also died down with it, the number of sky watchers on Cradle Hill also dropped off. So people weren't paying as much attention. But again, if you look at the beginning of it, people weren't paying attention to begin with of weird stuff happening. It just happened. Yeah. There was just more focus on it. So Arthur Shuttlewood, having become somewhat of a local authority and celebrity on the thing, would later be part of Skywatcher gatherings on nearby Cradle Hill. And he would tell participants that if they showed up before 9.30 p.m., they would see something strange by midnight. I love a tour that has that kind of guarantee. Yeah, we're promising this. <laughs> so, yeah. I think so much weird stuff was happening that more than likely you're going to see something weird in the sky, which is just, that that blows my mind. Well, he would go on to write three books about the thing, phenomena, in this time period anyway. Someone really should have renamed it by this point, especially the if thing? you write books on it. Yeah, I don't know. Because a thing, well, you know, that's like a, that's like the thing, like you said, John Carpenter. Right. Right. This was more than that, uh, but I guess you didn't... Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, Scott, that's the point of the title, though, is that they had no vocabulary for this. Yeah. According to the authors here, is that uh, it's not like they're as savvy as we are now. It's like, okay, we're changing the word UFO really to say unexplained aerial phenomenon right. or, you know, unidentified aerial phenomenon. They don't know what to call it at all, so they just call it the thing, and, and it's so much weirdness. Yeah, that's true. It's like, okay, now we got a, a new term for the things you see as opposed to the things you feel and hear or, or that show up in the road, so there's a lot going on. Well, the three books that Arthur Shuttlewood penned in this uh, short span of years here at the beginning were titled The Warminster Mystery, published in 1967. Warnings from Flying Friends, which was self-published by Shuttlewood in 1968, and his third book, UFOs, Key to the New Age, published in 1971, which many believe became the most way out with Shuttlewood's own questionable theories on the flap. So it's a lot of books in a short amount of time, really. Yeah, he had a lot to say about it. He had a lot to say. He had a lot of stuff to share. And uh, by the third book, though, people were like, come on, dude. You know, that's kind of the attitude, it seems here. But here, check this out. I don't know if Arthur was with this group on August 13th of 1972, but the Sky Watchers that were there that night on Cradle Hill reported feeling, quote, a supercharged atmosphere. Now, back to your earlier statement. Perhaps that was ozone? Something they feel where the, you know, the, the, the static electricity in the air, your, the hairs in your arm raise up and on the back of your neck and you feel it and you smell it and it smells like ozone? Yeah. Perhaps that's part of it. That's the only thing I, I came that I thought maybe there was a smell. Well, just the Other crackling, than the, smoke, the smoke I just bomb. feel I almost feel like yeah. I can smell it when I hear that description of a sound. Yeah. Well, check this out though, because uh, this is not your usual just uh, balls of lighted smoke in the sky. They said they could hear loud thumping noises coming from the hedgerow nearby. So they approached the hedgerow, and as Mirage Man writes, and uh, I couldn't describe this any better here. <laughs> Quote, three eight-foot-tall humanoids with large domed heads, no necks, wide shoulders, and long dangly arms came into view. The beings then turned transparent and glided along parallel to the Sky Watchers for a short time before vanishing as vehicles approached the area. Wow. End quote. There was a bustle in the hedgerow. <laughs> and then, yes, and if you're uh, taking what what I'm sure the members of Led Zeppelin are taking, uh, may I no, you know what? You wouldn't even see that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's so weird and wild. Yeah, like, that's I, pretty crazy. 
tall, eight foot tall. But that reminds me of, uh, you know, a, a, a bunch of chestnut ridge kind of stuff happening. Yeah. And it's almost Slenderman-esque as well. And yeah. Just strange. There's a lot of stuff here. It is a kitchen. There's sink a lot. It's situation. juicy. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, and again, in a short amount of time, and, and you know, you can understand why people would start losing their minds. Like, what's going on here? Is the world ending? Like, what? Why are these crazy things happening to us? And and it's enough. Of course, it's not like every third person, but it's enough that people are aware of it. You yeah. Know? And it's people they trust. So listen to this. And and again, talk about uh, rapid succession. Later that night, or I, I guess it would be early the next morning at two thirty a.m. There was a couple that was parked near Longleat Woods that saw two small red lights shoot up out of the woods and into the sky. They went to investigate the spot that the lights uh, went up from. They reported hearing a weird, quote, shooting sound. I, I, I'm going to guess that's kind of a whooshing noise mm-hmm. rather than like a gun gunfire because, you know, I think you would leave if yeah, gunfire. Yeah. yeah. So just like, like a shooting sound. Then the husband describes seeing something like a goat-like creature, except that this thing was a weird green color, and its stomach was covered in scales like a fish. Okay. And this possibly can't be a Rob Christofferson. <laughs> I figured this out. It's ergot poisoning? Yeah, yeah. It's some kind of uh, military experiment to see the effects of LSD on this entire town. Uh, Possibly. I mean, it's in the water. Something is yeah, crazy. Well, yeah. This stuff is hey. crazy. Our great friend Rob Christofferson, our space brother, he wasn't on LSD before going to work. I don't think so. That would just, he doesn't seem like that kind of guy. (laughs) Irresponsible to be, I should dose up, microdose before I head on into work. Yeah. No, that was early in the morning and he sees that kangaroo hybrid man. So, so again, kitchen sink, Scott, you got your cryptid, you got your hybrids, you got your alien weirdos, uh, human-esque, human-like weirdos. All manner of uh, visual weirdness that kind of reminds me of the uh, uh, the battle over Nuremberg in the skies. Yeah, uh, the wood weird shapes and and smoke. Yeah, they yeah. saw some smoke and looks like craft were on fire. Just a, a bouillon bays of weirdness. Okay, well, after interest had slowed way down in the 1970s regarding Warminster, uh, perhaps because there were fewer organic sightings or. Uh, reportings that caught people's attention and the incidents, you know, they become forgotten after a while. The attitude of the skeptics, it seemed, turned the blame for most of the hullabaloo to Arthur Shuttlewood's ability to generate interest and gain followers with his charm, who then, uh, these followers, then misidentified natural celestial phenomena and man-made craft as being connected to the thing. And also, Shuttlewood's religious ideas about the phenomena were also used to discredit him at this time. You remember, there was a kind of a turning against uh, religious thought. And, uh, you know, he certainly doesn't seem to have enjoyed the respectful legacy that John Keel still enjoys. So, so Shuttlewood, he, he was regarded by his critics as a journalist who had lost his objectivity in an age when that mattered to one's credibility. Yeah, it doesn't matter right now, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Do what you, say whatever you want, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it just, would seem just, that just, way. It would seem that just, way. You know what? In the middle of whatever you're doing, fly your flag, because we're all doing it. So (laughs) join on in, people. Well, Shuttlewood would write two more books, one called UFO Magic in Motion and his last book, More UFOs Over Warminster, both, according to Amazon, as being published in 1979. I'm interested in all of these books now, by the way, and especially (sighs) if they devolve with each one. I just want to read as they're devolving into that's you know the theoretical de-evolution of his that's really stupid of you because i think that's what people who were keeping up with this 
felt about Shuttlewood is like, okay, this guy is descent into madness. He's not starting to make any more sense. And, and it's taking over his, his psyche. But I think as a journalist or whatever, it's not like he got fantastical or started making up stuff. I think he didn't know what to think about it. And so one description here from one of the articles I read is that by today's standards, his thinking was, you could say, kind of wacky or, or didn't make much sense. But like, how do you make sense of any of this stuff? So who's to say now that it's like, no, you were totally wrong, Mr. Shuttlewood. It's this paranormal phenomenon that is really happening. It, as a lot of paranormal uh, researchers will say, like, you don't trust anybody that tells you they know what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Because they don't. Right. They might have a good theory or a good hypothesis, but who really knows and who can really tell you? So, well, eventually the story of the Warminster thing had gradually faded from the public consciousness as, as well as the annals of UFO lore. And sadly, Arthur Shuttlewood passed away in Warminster in 1996 after a long illness. And at the end here, there was no dramatic final act finale for the Warminster thing, so it remains an open-ended mystery. Now, there is one good documentary that was made about it, according to Kevin Goodman, who is, I would say, an authority on this as well, and, and it'd be great to read his book because uh, I tend to trust his opinion on this stuff and reportage. But he says in 1966, the BBC produced a 30-minute documentary uh, they called Pie in the Sky. And according to Kevin Goodman, he said, this is the most level and fair of all the contemporary pieces down about the wave strangeness. So... I have not watched it, but it might be fun to see, again, people on film at that time talking about this stuff. So if you would like to see a good historical record of eyewitness accounts, that might be a good place to start. Now, Scott, you remember at the beginning I said, I tried to book in this a little bit, uh, that we said uh, people generally think that this all started Christmas Day, 1964. But really, if you look at the breadth of it, you have to go back further than that, and that this area has always been, not as much, of course, but always been experiencing a little bit of weirdness. It's one of those thin places, perhaps. And maybe that's the nature of these flap areas like Chestnut Ridge. Yeah. Because you look at Skinwalker Ridge, like, oh, that just happened with Terry and he's making it all up. You know, the Terry Sherman. It's like, no, no, the native ancestors, that land to them was special and full of wonder and mystery and strangeness. And, uh, and you better be careful in there. So it didn't just start there. People like to define that. They, they want to put a button on this. And I think that's what the story is here, is that there was no real wrap-up to this. There was a huge spike, certainly Christmas Day. You can say that. But before this, Mirage Man has three accounts here of strangeness that happened way before 1964. Listen to this. It's largely accepted that the Warminster thing begins on Christmas Day, but... Uh, Here's a few things that uh, were reported decades prior. So a report from a motorist on the Salisbury-Bamford Road comes from December of 1930 when he said his car was suddenly surrounded by a black mist. Just before the mist cleared, he said a gray-looking hand came out of nowhere and grabbed him, but then let go as the mist dissipated. That reminds me of Pontefract. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. The weird uh, disembodied hands. Also, is it the vertical plane? Yeah. There's stories where hands just appear out of nowhere and grab people. Yeah. Well, uh, listen to this. Another man reported that he was on his way to pick up his wife, who was visiting friends on New Year's Day in 1936. Uh, he picked up a female hitchhiker wearing a green suit. She sat in the back seat, but when he looked back at her, she had vanished. So you got oh, your vanishing go. hitchhiker, but not wearing white, wearing green. Okay. Then again, it is New Year's Day, so it's a festive time. Again, that isn't a terribly weird, but like... 
this is all in this one village. So in November of 1961, a few years before the flap, a UFO was seen at night by a group of four people leaving a trail of sparks as it sailed over the town of Warminster. So as David Letterman used to say, uh, you can't start it like a car, you can't stop it with a gun. It just comes on and it, it, it peaks and then it fades away. And as we close out this segment, and maybe we wonder what was really going on with all this, perhaps it's best to start by hearing from someone who was there, Kevin Goodman. Because as Kevin Goodman says in the last paragraph of his BBC article from May of 2010, quote, whether Warminster was a cultural social event or a genuine UFO call, which is UFO cal, sorry, uh, that <laughs> I, I don't know what that word is, but it's UFO C-A-L. So maybe it's a play on words, UFO, like a focus, yeah. UFO call here. He goes on to say, far too much time has now passed for any accurate investigations to be made. One thing is certain, however, despite all the new research into the phenomena in this quiet Wiltshire town, all I can say is this, something strange did happen there. I know, for a time, I was part of it. That's going to wrap up this episode on the Utah monolith and the Warminster thing. We'll be back next week with our second to last show of the year. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. My name is Tina. I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. A. T. Galaxy-wide. On the wild Atlantic way in Ireland. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.